because I want you all to realize that I didn't screw Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar screwed Brock Lesnar. Brock, you're suspended. Hello, my name is Chris White and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Tonight, we're going back in the time machine to November 2002 to bring you a full review of the Survivor Series pay-per-view and all your WWE news and action. Before I introduce who will be accompanying me on this month's journey through time, I want to give out give a shout out to our friends at 10 Beer Bottles. Why not treat yourself to the very best of beer and cider by visiting 10beerbottles.co.uk, that's 10beerbottles, enter code WRESTLING20 at checkout and get 10% off online orders with no minimum spend. With the festive season almost upon us, have a look on the website. Treat yourself for a loved one. I've got my eye on a uh, rather lovely looking stout called Obi-Wan Cannoli, and I'll be very much making use of that code in the near future myself. Back to matters at hand. Joining me for our trip into the past. Firstly, we have Dan Welling. Dan, how are we? Excellent, as always. When I'm talking about wrestling, we're two very good chums of mine. Yeah, I mean, me and you are Survivor Series veterans. We've been through many a Survivor Series together. We have. And rounding off the trio is another Survivor Series veteran who has been on many a show with the two of us, our fearless leader, Rory McNamara. Rory, how you doing? Not bad, not bad. I feel I need to be fearless with some of the Survivor Series shows that we've done in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not this time. Well, famously, you're the only one of the three of us to appear on the Survivor Series show, 97. All four hours and seven minutes of it. Yep, I was there. I I still feel like I'm still there now, to be honest with you. I can't imagine we're going to go that long, but we do have the WWE Championship match to discuss. So maybe, (laughs) just maybe, we'll get there. Might not be too far off. Rory, would you kindly take us through the news for the month? Yeah, again, not a whole lot happening behind the scenes. There's the sense that now the battle has been won. There's no real need for anybody to do anything. And I was sifting through the five editions of the torch that we could have gleaned news from. And there was just nothing really worth speaking about other than something very, very serious and something very, very not serious. Let's get to the serious stuff first. So uh, last week, as we record this, uh, Steve Austin made a public appearance at an electronics store in Virginia. And 4,000 people turned up to said autograph signing. Why do I mention that? Well, because in the same week, he, as has been euphemistically put, cleared up his lingering legal issues. And for more on what they were, do listen to our SummerSlam show. Just lingering legal issues, really? Just come on. He pleaded no contest to misdemeanor domestic assault charges. There we go. He was sentenced to one year's probation, $1,000 fine. Ooh. And he will be required to undergo counselling on family violence. Now, the fans in Virginia seem to be rather forgiving. What about World Wrestling Entertainment? Well, they undertook some house cleaning of their website over the month, and most references to Steve Austin were removed. You can no longer search for him on the website. No more interviews or videos in the archives. His bio has gone completely, and stonecold.com will take you nowhere. However, when Austin left the courtroom, 
He said this, that he was looking forward to returning to the ring, but he couldn't say if he would for sure be returning to WWE, but said he would be, and I quote, willing to talk about it. I don't doubt that, Mr. Williams. I don't doubt that. A very, very grim business indeed. That way back in August when we first discussed it, I if and ammed about even mentioning it on these shows, but we can't sugarcoat these things. We're here to bring you the news. And what bigger news is there than this, really? Will we be talking about Steve Austin again in any meaningful form or fashion? I don't know. I have my opinions on whether or not I want to, but that is very much not my decision. So I do want to finish this very brief news portion on some more lighthearted news. And again, you can tell that I subscribe to the PW Torch with this news being front and centre. That the soon to be former governor, Jesse Ventura, is considering a return to the ring for a match against Brock Lesnar. <laughs> he told KFAN Radio that he has been getting himself in better shape lately. I'll just let that one hang for a couple of seconds. Uh, he apparently told by Vince McMahon that no former governor has ever been a WWE champion. Mm, no, I think that's at least factually correct, if nothing else. Uh, Ventura would love for the press to believe that he is going to feud with the WWE champion, but it seems more likely now that he would team with Lesnar if he were to return to the ring. Yeah, that's not what I asked, though, is it? With, <laughs> with this is direct quote from the torch, I had to laugh. With WWE ratings and attendance down, and memories of what a shot in the arm Mike Tyson was to WWE businesses when he, when he was special ref five years ago, Ventura may be able to command a big payoff for several TV appearances or even a regular role on WWE television. I remember at WrestleMania 5, Jesse Ventura saying that he thought, even he thought that Hulkamania was going to last forever. And I thought it had gone to his head then. <laughs> even a period of a gubernatorialship has not really removed that from my opinions over the last three years Jesse Ventura versus Brock Lesnar I think I've said enough already Dan I want to go to you on the news I mean feel free to comment on on both stories or or, or just take the sort of more dark one or keep it light and give us your thoughts on Jesse Ventura's potential return to the WWE. Do I really need to talk about Jesse Ventura's return to WWE against Brock Lesnar? I mean, come on. Come on, guys. Come Look, on. This Mike Tyson-esque splash <laughs> is, is coming. Yeah. Just gonna no. Gonna no do that, WWE. It's just no. Don't rain on our parade, Dan. <laughs> I know that we'd love to, you know, tread on nostalgia and, and we'd love to. We, I, I had enough of Hulk Hogan in the April, May time. I don't need the 10 times less popular guy trying to challenge for Brock Lesnar for the world title. Can you imagine Hulk Hogan's reaction to say that, oh, I fucking lost and got bled into a bloody pulp by Brock Lesnar to put him over before SummerSlam. And now one of my most hated rivals is now going to main event against him in WrestleMania. I, I don't think that's just going to happen, guys. Just need to, need to you know, accept that. Um, and yeah, I don't really want to talk about the other side of the coin that we just uh, referenced here, but it's it's genuinely depressing. To like, you know, he was the man who was the hero for a, a lot of kids, and I don't think that, thankfully, this is probably passing them by this story because they're 
they're trying to airbrush him out of the history and I, I'm glad that he almost walked away from the company when he did so that they don't have this problem with an on-air character because that would feel very weird but there are moments in this month's television which when you know about the context of what's going on with one of wrestling's most well-known individuals just does not make you feel comfortable watching it and yeah it's I, again, as Rory's mentioned, I don't know whether I'm quite there yet to to want Stone Cold Steve Austin back in the WWE ring at any point in the near future. And if you said that to me a year ago, when we were singing the praises of the man in the ring, it's it's again, it's depressing. Yeah, it's it's pretty unfathomable, and I was right there with you, as pretty much everyone who's appeared on any of these shows over the last, well, I was going to say, couple of years, but more than that and it, i yeah we're in a place now where i don't want to talk about that anymore and that's like some of the greatest wrestling memories i've had of like some of the moments that the company had with him at the center and it's incredibly depressing the future is pretty bleak and i i don't really know what i want to see happen or how i'll feel if he ever does come back or all of these things are up in the air and I think it's like a fluid situation. Things going to change over time. But right now it's just, it's dark, it's bleak. It's depressing that it's ever happened and it's going to be really difficult to have the situation move out of the darkness at all and into something remotely palatable. Um, and then on the flip side of the coin, you've got the palatable situation of Jesse Ventura and Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania, which I think, Dan, you're going to need to get on board with because I can see this for sure happening and closing that show. Yeah. Okay, I'll, wager, the... I'll wager 50 whole pounds that it went. I, I do not take that bet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with... With the news covered, um, we'll head straight towards uh, Survivor Series itself, which is an event that sees the very first Elimination Chamber match scheduled in the main event of the show. Obviously, we'll review that match itself um, in due course, but I think we've been introduced here to a new match type, so maybe it's only right that we have some discussion on the new concepts itself. So, Rory, I, I want to sort of come to you first. Obviously, I suppose in some ways it's quite a difficult situation to be in where we don't comment too much on the match itself. But just from the introduction we had to the chamber and the going over of the rules and, I mean, on the pay-per-view, Taz takes the piss out of Michael Cole for explaining the rules so much, which I actually don't think they're particularly complicated, really. They're quite straightforward. What do you make of this new sort of idea for a match the elimination chamber and and what future it will have within the wwe well i think it needs to have a long future in the wwe because they're going to have to pay for the bloody thing you know miles and miles and tons worth of steel you know that stuff you know bit of a pretty penny so i feel we might be seeing this type of match again and i hope not too often so i don't want to talk about the specific match we got here because we'll get to that later but I think they did a pretty decent job of making it seem something completely out of the ordinary or the brainchild of Eric Bischoff. Um, I want to make this point about Bischoff now. I thought his video package about it, which aired 
at the start of Survivor Series, the pay-per-view was fantastic. I've got very little critical comment to make about Bischoff in the last four months. And this was yet another tick in the plus box. He really got over what I think they wanted this match to be. But I want to refer back to our first show in October of this year, Lacey and Eric. They nailed it for me, really, when they said that you've got a match in this demonic superstructure making its debut one month after what was supposedly already the ultimate match in a demonic superstructure in Hell in a Cell. And I just wonder if they panicked a little bit when whoever it was who came up with this idea put it on the table and they whacked it right out there because forgetting everything else about who was in the match at No Mercy and who was in the match at Survivor Series again what those matches were like I couldn't really suspend my disbelief that this was the cage match to end all cage matches because we've been told that Hell in a Cell was that and we experienced a pretty bloody strong example of it just 28 days ago. Now, I wonder if they could have held off on it. There are a couple more specifics that I'll get to when we talk about the match. Uh, again, as you say, Chris, I think they over-exaggerated its peculiarities somewhat. I mean, it really wasn't that complicated. Now, two people start, another person comes in every five minutes, and then you whittle it down to one at the end. It's... It, <laughs> You know, you don't need a PhD in pro wrestling. <laughs> now, there's a thought. <laughs> Where do I sign? Um, to really understand this. Uh, I almost get the sense they were pushing against pushing against limitations that they accidentally set for themselves on this one. And they couldn't really let it speak for itself. And I think, if anything, that was an admission of the fact, and I do think it's a fact, didn't quite need it at this stage I, I'm trying to stop myself from talking about the specifics but they could have main evented Survivor Series another way and still kept most of these people involved which I will elaborate on but obviously a lot of work went into this match in creating it and the 50, 60, 70 or you know, people working through the nights many many nights to get this stuff up have my absolute admiration but I just think they overshot themselves. And if they'd held off maybe two or three months, they could have made it a bit tighter. But there will be many, many more opportunities in the future to get it right. That's for certain. Dan, what did you think of Elimination Chamber as a match concept? I mean, yeah, as Rory said, it's it's pretty... when When you can explain it in a sentence, I think it generally works quite well. And when you have to think of those big you know kind of part of the furniture gimmick matches now that we've got involving a cage hell in a cell oh yeah it's a steel cage match with a roof over it elimination chamber it's basically hell in a cell with pods with one two men starting one pod opens every five minutes whittled down to the end it's pretty self-explanatory and i think that they can then just draw upon all of the usual satanic ritual you know jr michael cole jerry law the hell in a cell sort of descriptions to put it over but i think as as roy mentioned and i agree with him that it was just badly timed and 
maybe this was a way to just have the continuation of the Raw and SmackDown storyline. Maybe it was a way to get the belt onto a certain somebody who we'll discuss later on without it peaking in a one-on-one match. Maybe it was just a way to try and get ratings into a place that the WWE were comfortable seeing in, you know, June, July 2001 sort of time rather than June, July 2002 time. I'm sure that there's probably all of those are true in some ways and we never know which one was the main reason behind it. But look, if I'm looking at it and I, it's definitely got more, it's definitely got less personal animosity behind it than Hell in a Cell or a Cage match, but it also carries a lot more logical actions behind it than War Games does. And I think if we're at some in the middle between Hell in a Cell and War Games, I think we're in for a pretty good staple gimmick match going forward yeah i i take on board entirely what you both say about sort of like the proximity to the last hell in a cell match and i i I actually think the biggest issue around the chamber which i'm a huge fan of and i will elaborate more on that in a second is, is is probably that proximity to the hell in a cell combined with the way it's been marketed as this like demonic structure, like I, I think this match needs to be less about like this cage like structure and how punishing it is. Like I get that, that's one angle, but the angle that you can build this match around is like it's a gauntlet that the champion needs to run. Like if you make elimination chamber, like to me, Hell in a Cell is like is that demonic cage, like this is where feuds go to die. And men go to bleed like payoff level match that you throw in when a feud needs or demands that level of severity and brutality and you deliver a spectacle of a main event within the hell in a cell whereas i think the chamber could quite easily become something more akin to a royal rumble match that it's like the champion goes in to this and has to fight through this gauntlet and come out and it's like the the sort of like the gauntlet is the spectacle and the draw rather than the structure which i just think the marketing's like they've got it in the wrong place i think the combination of elements of like the hell in a cell which is obviously the uh enclosed like enclosed cage format and obviously partly war games i guess the countdown timer and the interviews again from war games but also notably the rumble and like the elimination process of like a royal rumble or like a traditional survivor series five on five elimination style match i think you've created a formula here that has a sort of a lot of room within it to build stories for the future like you can do within a rumble but also to enhance individual stories without giving a payoff to them. So you can put two guys in here who are in a feud and it doesn't have to be the culmination of the match, one pinning the other. You can pay off stories now like they did here, where you have two guys that are actively in a rivalry like Triple H and Shawn Michaels and the culmination of the match comes down to those two. I think having this as like a... A uh, match type that rivals Hell in a Cell or is in that same category is 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 like a misstep. But if I th- think of this as more a Rumble type event, and they went that way, I could see this being like 
just a staple of the WWE calendar that I look forward to like I do a Royal Rumble. Does that kind of make sense as a idea? I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't like this is the thing where if you had one of these a year, I don't know that I'd get sick of it in the same way that I would having if you had Hell in a Cell every year and it was Hell in a Cell for the sake of Hell in a Cell. You know what? You, just, this, you know what? This is a better version of. And it leads into what you said. This is a better version of the Armageddon six man Hell in a Cell yes. match they did back in 2000. And that That's was billed as a Kurt Angle's got no hope of winning this match, has he? He's got he's up against all these big bulls, and somehow he did. And we had all the storylines with Rock and Rikishi were feuding, and Austin and Hunter were feuding. That works better yeah. when you say it like that. And this is a Mission Chamber format, which we'll discuss later on. In my opinion, worked a lot better as a throwing match structure with having one focus point rather than having the cameraman trying to follow six different people all around the ring doing their own thing and and having this also can protect protect hell in a cell as a match type because you don't need to use it in that armageddon hell in a cell six man spot because you've got the chamber and you can keep hell in a cell for the be all and end all level matches now whether i trust them to do that that's that's a different conversation but i think on paper if I think of this, like I say, as more of a Rumble style match than a Hell in a Cell style match, then I, I'm I'm like completely on board. And it's only two months away from the Rumble as well, which probably hurts it a little bit because this is the time of year where everybody's looking forward to the Royal Rumble. And rightly so, because this is September to the end of December is normally the dead period, as we've talked about for many years. So in that respect, I can see why they've done it to try to just up the ante a little bit and keep some interest. But when you compare it to the Royal Rumble, which it's really not dissimilar to, then I still think at least now it pales into comparison. If you move the Elimination Chamber match to a currently a B-level pay-per-view, maybe the July show and make it for a title shot rather than the title and have the winner get a shot for their respective title at SummerSlam perhaps might be a slightly better way to go. Again, I will develop that point when we discuss the match as we got it here, because I think it being a title match was one of possibly the black marks against it, but we'll get there. But as long as we never see war games in the WWE, because I fucking hate that stupid, dumbass match. Minority view, I know, but it's true. Who's going to win the coin toss, guys? On that bombshell, uh, Rory, would you kindly take us through the results of Survivor Series 2002? I'll bring you up and I'll knock you down. Okay, so Survivor (laughs) Series 2002 from good old HQ MSG uh, for the first pay-per-view since Royal Rumble 2000, I believe. Let's go through the results. So the team of Jeff Hardy and some Dudley boys, more on that later, eventually defeated three-minute warning, Rosie and Jamal and Rico in an elimination tables match. What else? Uh, Billy Kidman beat Jamie Noble to win the Cruiserweight Championship in our first of many title changes tonight. Victoria beating Trish Stratus for the Women's Championship in a hardcore match, being another one. As was The Big Show beating Brock Lesnar for the WWE Championship, he says with a huge smile on his face. (laughs) Replicated around all of our panellists today, no doubt. 
Another title change is Los Guerreros defeated Edge and Rey Mysterio, the then champions, and Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit in a triple threat elimination match for the WWE Tag Team Championship. And in our main event, which I'm sure you've already worked out, was an elimination chamber match for the World Heavyweight Championship. Shawn Michaels became world champion. Knocking off Rob Van Dam, Booker T, Kane, Chris Jericho, and Triple H. Dan, what did you make of Survivor Series? I thought this was easily one of the best ever Survivor Series pay-per-views. There's only one match on this card that is a black mark, which, again, long-time listeners to this podcast will know for my own personal opinion is potentially a good mark because we might we might actually get a, a Rory-esque rant, which is always a highlight for this show. But apart from that, I had no complaints. And honestly, it continues a very, very strong hot streak, in my opinion, that the, this company have been on with pay-per-views in the last probably four or five months. It's a big fucking black mark, though, isn't it? Rory. Seven foot, 500 pound size black mark, maybe. Am I speaking out of turn when I put that on the record? Probably not. We'll see. Save yourself, Chris. Save yourself. I think you need to. Um, Okay. I don't think this uh, this show had a real classic match on it, but it had enough very good ones and it had enough talking points to make it one of the very finest WWE pay-per-views this year. And I think some of the reviews that I've read have overlooked that fact uh the pw torch round table um dave Meltzer, they were a lot cooler on this than i think they should have been i understand why again and i will get to that probably as we go match by match but i think this flowed really really well and it felt like an a-grade pay-per-view no matter how many quibbles I might and do have with some of the booking, which we'll get to. But as a two hour, 40 minutes in the middle of November, for the least of the A pay-per-views, the thumbs are already up. Yeah, uh, I think one match aside, I thought this was a really good show. And I probably disagree in that I don't with you, Rory, and you say you don't think there was a classic match on it. I, I think I was, I'm probably way higher on the chamber match than you are then because i really loved that main event i thought it was excellent and uh the closing of the show was superb and yeah i think there were so many things on this show that just had me and like you say two hours 40 minutes the uh travesty that was the wwe championship result i mean that match was like four minutes of a two hour 40 show i i can i can forgive that you know it's it's one of the better pay-per-views i've seen this year i think um, and yeah, that main event is probably one of my favourite. I mean, this criteria is quite niche, but like thinking of like multi-man title matches, I, I know it's so gimmicky in a chamber, but like I I, I don't know. There, there was just a lot about it I I really enjoyed. Um, like the pacing, which is obviously very deliberate and laid out because you have the the natural five-minute intervals and stuff, but the way it all came together i i really enjoyed um so yeah despite the glaring the obvious issue that we'll get to um i thought this was an excellent show 
Our opening video package focused on uh, Brock Lesnar versus The Big Show from the SmackDown brand and our first ever Elimination Chamber match featuring the Raw talent, which will be tonight's main event. We had a packed house at New York City's Madison Square Garden. Uh, they show us the Elimination Chamber above the ring and the Raw announced team of Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler welcome us to the show. Our opening match comes to us courtesy of the Raw brand. It's an elimination tables match with Jeff Hardy, Bubba Ray Dudley and Spike Dudley taking on Rosie Jamal and Rico. We start the match with a big brawl uh, that the faces win and Bubba press slams uh, Spike into the three minute warning. They catch him, but Jeff leaps off Bubba and onto them in a pretty cool spot. Spike hits a Harakamrana on Jamal. Bubba and Jeff team up to hit the WhatsApp drop for good measure. Jeff jumps off the top of the leg drop onto the crotch of Rico. Bubba tells his partners to get the table, which are laid out around the ring. Rosie moves a clothesline to Bubba and a back body drop on Jeff that sends him over the top to the floor. Spike is uh, leaning against the table. Rosie charges. Spike moves. Rosie goes through the table, but it doesn't count as an, elim as an elimination. Jeff goes off the top. Rosie looks like he was meant to catch him, but Jeff sort of bounce off. So he hits a splash on the downed Jeff. Spike looks for the Dudley dog, put three minute warning, save Rico and uh, Spike is put through the table face first for the opening elimination of the match. Rosie takes Jeff outside and uh, loads up a table, but Bubba makes the save. Rosie and Jeff brawl into the crowd. They set up a table by one of the exits. Rico and Jamal work on Bubba in the ring, but Bubba pulls Rico in front of him and Jamal splash splashes Rico in the corner. We get a Bubba bomb on Jamal before Bubba's into the crowd going straight after Rosie. Bubba puts him on the table. Jeff climbs up and hits the Swanton bomb off an exit sign to eliminate him. Uh, back inside, Rico uh, loads Bubba onto the table before setting up for a moonsault. What follows, much like what I just dropped in, is a rather awkward pause as uh, Jeff is not there to make the save. Rico stands there for about 10 seconds and uh, Bubba can be seen looking around for Jeff. At one stage, Rico very shout, very clearly shouts, come on, Jeff, before Hardy eventually is there to crotch him to make the save to save Bubba. Jamal knocks Jeff down and Bubba goes for a back suplex off the top through a table, but Jamal moves out of the way. Hardy uh, runs across the guardrail, but Jamal has a table in his hands and shoves it forward. Jeff crashes into it. Jamal sets the table up on the floor, climbs to the top rope and hits the splash through the table and Jeff Hardy is eliminated. Bubba works over Rico in the ring. He sets him up on the table, but Jamal makes a save. Bubba and Jamal battle on the top. Bubba drops Jamal with a powerbomb through the table for, for the elimination. So we're down to just Bubba versus Rico. Jamal gets back involved and Rosie joins the fray as well until... Devon finally... Devon comes out and it's there to finally reunite with Bubba to a huge reaction. A quick 3D puts Rico through the table for the win. Uh, the team of Bubba, Spike and Jeff pick up the victory in our opening contest and the crowd absolutely love the Dudleys reuniting. Dan, what did you think of the opener? That was a very good match with a very fun ending. And for an opening match at MSG, that is arguably the most important thing that you can give them in my opinion they've obviously done this before with a some form of tag team table match obviously with the Dudleys and the Hardys in Rumble 2000 I think this was not quite at that level but that is a very high standard because yeah the just the the 
just the addition of some people like Rico and Spike who aren't quite at that level and probably you can include Rosie in that month but Jeff Hardy you know you, what you're going to get with him in terms of his daredevilness and unfortunately we also know what we're going to get with one of the worst botches of the year probably this year which again has a little nail against this this match but Jamal's splash off the top rope to eliminate Jeff is a thing of beauty if you haven't seen that spot go and watch it because that man can hang in the middle of the air for a 350 pound wrestler that's mightily impressive and yes I am glad to see the Dudley boys back as a tag team as well not only because it means that Lacey's automatically going to vote for them as tag team of the year again at the end of the year awards but also because neither of them would ex, you know succeeding as a singles wrestler even though the Reverend Devon gimmick was fun it wasn't going anywhere it was dying a death it was going to be stuck in the mid card even in the lower card for the rest of his career as at least as the Dudleys they are going to be over they're going to be in their wheelhouse they're going to be seen as like a dominant tag team and they can be a foil for whoever they want to be a tag team on the Smackdown brand or the Raw brand like can we please just give Smackdown a trade so we can have the Dudley versus Los Guerreros and Angle versus Benoit or something like that just as a dream match because they these two Bubba and Devon are better as a two and then in front of the NYC crowd that loves them this was absolutely the right decision to bring them back. Rory over to you. Entirely agree this was masterful booking I have many problems with booking in some of the other matches but not here starting with this one a tables elimination match in front of an msg crowd with an iteration of the dudley boys in there against three minute warning the best thing about them is their name but the second best thing about them is what they do in the ring when you look at those guys rosie and jamal you have an image in your mind of how they should wrestle and bloody hell, do they ever bloody do it? <laughs> That's the thing. You thought it was something disappointing coming there. Not at all. They wrestle how they look. And I want to say that's rarer than it should be these days as we move into 2003. But these guys look like they're going to fuck you up. And Spike in particular, I'm sure, would answer in the affirmative after that face plant he took for that elimination. Whoa, mama. This was so well put together. Everybody got a time to shine. And I think we were all hoping that we were going to get a Dudley reformation that it was a bit hope against hope. And I love the fact they just did it. No pissing around, no airs and graces. The match is nearly at the end. Here we are watching it at home. Got the MSG famous entrance right in front of us. Let's have Devon come out of that and help Bubba get the win. And that's all you need to do. I'm not sure that the fans cheering them to the rafters when they got back together were then hoping this would lead to them rooting through uh, Chris Jericho and Christian's bags and stealing their ass cream eight days down the line. But no, none of us can predict the future on this, can we? But I do have to put in, because I've been glowing far too much and people don't expect that from me on these podcasts. Now, do you remember when Jeff Hardy was the future? We were talking about it, Undertaker match four months ago. Now, this could be it for him. He had the proverbial mare in this one. There was the moment you mentioned where Rika had to outright shout at him, come on, Jeff, God damn it!" But he botched his run around the guardrail thing there was a moment early in the match where he went for a body press and was nowhere near it and it's just 
a general malaise with him that has always been there, even at the very best matches. But you know, when you're falling 25 feet off a ladder, you, know, you can hide the fact that you're a little bit sloppy. You know, it adds to the excitement, really. But you can't do that all the time. And you've got to maintain a little bit of basic professionalism in there. And I remember in our ill-fated future main eventer award a couple of years ago that will never be coming back. You know, a lot of us put Jeff Hardy into the reckoning there. And I did voice a, a word of caution that I don't think he has it together often enough. And here we are two years later, and I still don't think he does. Doesn't detract from the excitement of this match. And I think that's the right word. Opening with this was just a master stroke. It's so simple, but they went ahead with it. Didn't try to overthink themselves on this one. And I hope the comedic Dudleys they've got out of their system on the last war of the month that they end up being the Dudleys again. The babyface version that we saw a lot of in 2000 because I'm all for moving forward in life and not reliving the past but we just want to see Devon and Bubba together doing their thing don't we? You know, There's a reason they've been our tag team of the year for the last 85 years on this podcast. Let's just make it a nice round 86 shall we? Yeah, I agree with both of you. This was an excellent opener. Uh, Masterstroke putting it on first. Really fun ending and having the Dudleys reunite here was just a brilliant decision. Uh, yeah, it says something when the best elimination isn't Jeff hitting a swanton off something high <laughs> through a table, but it's that splash from Jamal driving Jeff through a table. Um, just, yeah, I have I have very little more that I can add to this. This was just an, a really good opener. Despite having some sloppy moments, it's not like a five-star classic. I mean, it's an elimination tables match. Uh, and uh, they're there to go out. Uh, the, like all, Everyone's wrestling at double speed in a, in a way. Like, they had time. But, I mean, it's, it's that type of match where people are in they take a big spot and then someone else is in and something else is happening. Um, but it's exactly what the match needed to be in the position it was in. And it gave the crowd what they wanted with the resolution. So yeah, hugely positive way to start the show. After a D tour to the world in New York, where Stacey Keebler introduces us to a performance from saliva, we hear the SmackDown announced team of Michael Cole and Taz, uh, who are on the call for the next match, the Cruiserweight champion, Jamie Noble, defending his title against Billy Kidman. Noble takes control early following a neck breaker. He sends Kidman out of the ring and now is a suicide dive. Kidman comes back with a drop kick after Noble comes off the top. Kidman gets a fireman's carry into a knee before Noble hits a falcon arrow. Kidman drives Noble's stomach, th- stomach thirst into the mat. Nidia pulls Noble out of the ring to avoid a shooting star press, so Kidman hits a crossbody block onto the floor. Back in the ring, Kidman hits a slingshot leg drop for two. Uh, Kidman goes into the ropes, but Nidia grabs his leg. She slaps him, so Kidman sends Noble crashing into her. Kidman hits the BK bomb for two. He gets a backslide, but Noble fights out of it, and he hits a tiger bomb for two of his own. They battle on the top rope, with Kidman slamming Noble off the top face first, DDT style for a great near fall. Uh, Noble sets Kidman up so that his feet are on the top rope and hits a draping DDT, which gets two. Kidman gets an enzakuri before he goes up top. Nidia tries a distraction, but Kidman kicks her away. He knocks Noble down and hits a shooting star press for the win and the title after around seven and a half minutes. Dan. I was about to go. I, I wanted a little bit more from this match. And then... Both those guys 
hit that finishing four move sequence with the BTK bomb, Tiger bomb, top rope impaling DDT, and then the, five, and then the uh, shooting star press. And I was going, yep, yeah, there you go. That's why Cruiser Wrestling can be amazing. And it's not, I don't, I still maintain we're not quite at WCW embracing the cruiserweights for everything we have. The most of the wrestlers we have are, are a little bit toned down, particularly Kidman compared to his um, WCW days. But Jamie Noble is an absolutely wonderful technician in the ring. He's an amazing addition to this roster's mid card. I, I, I love him, especially with Nidia. And yeah, Kidman, I want to say, is. A, a brilliant poster boy for the cruiserweight division, but I still maintain his shooting star press gets worse and worse every time I single time I see it, particularly versus when he was doing it in WCW. His new entrance music is utter shit for, for what <laughs> for what it's worth. I can't stand it when I heard that. So yeah, if you told me before the match, yeah, I Pilly Kibben's gonna come out as this as the cruiserweight champion, I would have gone, yep, yeah, I'm all for that. And we've come full circle for when kind of the cruiserweight title was rebooted after WrestleMania. But I don't know. The something about this match was it's still good. Don't get me wrong. Even over and Billy Kidman had getting ten minutes in the ring, it was going to be very good. But it's not great as I would have liked to have had it, if that makes sense. Like I I, I wish Tajiri was around, let's put this way. I still think Tajiri versus Jamie Noble would, would be the best pairing of the little mini cruiserweight division we've got. And we still don't have Rey Mysterio um cutting loose yet in the cruiserweight division for smackdown that would be a demotion for him in like normal card drops but if it means that we get great wrestling then i'm all for it so yeah there we go that's generally my overall thoughts just go and watch that top row ddt again it looked absolutely sick rory over to you point number one chris well done to you because I would have edited it out if you had, but for not dwelling on Saliba's performance, by the way. And I feel like we've seen quite enough of them this year. And WWE's obsession with them is rather worrying. You've got to say, um, when you have JR in his Ross report online saying that he has saliva in his CD changer, you know, there's just so much wrong with that sentence. And all needs to be said about that. So well done for moving swiftly on to this match that was absolutely as good as it could have been given the circumstances once more having a work rate match inverted commas second from the bottom in front of an msg crowd is superbly superbly chosen upon whoever it was but i do agree with dan that the match didn't really get above very good levels but it couldn't because they were two of the little guys who can't get on the big rides and they're only going to be given seven and a half minutes. They're not going to have the freedom that they were afforded in WCW. I'm afraid this is as good as it's going to get. What we saw on this pay-per-view was not far removed from the work. These guys and others in their division have been doing on primarily on SmackDown, (laughs) not on Raw, on SmackDown. Okay, and that's no slight on them. They did everything they could. And the last 30 seconds in particular, knock it up a couple of notches. But they're never going to be permitted to get beyond. We are never going to see in the WWE a match the quality of 
Ray versus Eddie from Halloween Havoc 97. Because it's not on the docket. It's not what the WWE are about. Seven and a half minutes on pay-per-view. The very, very best we can ever hope for. And I think the guys know this. It's probably good news for Jamie Noble in particular, because I think he's an extremely versatile worker. He's not just the spot monkey, high flyer, any of that stuff. Now, he has a lot of strings to his bow. So even when he's only given six, seven minutes, he can pack a lot in and he can bring the mat work. He can bring the psychology. And he did so here in spades. Kidman was Kidman. Little more, but in this situation, that's OK. Uh, they're damned by their own, damned by their own qualities, these guys. And I think if we keep on going on, going ahead with this into 2003 and beyond, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be a bit tired of us saying this, but it's what the WWE are providing for us. Diverting, entertaining stuff with the little guys leaping around for seven, eight minutes, and then we're programmed to forget about it. That's a shame, but I've almost come to terms with it now. It's definitely a shame, but I, I think we've been in many darker days where we've had matches that are, are there for five, six, seven minutes on pay-per-view for the sake of being there, like, and we're meant to forget about it immediately after that, like, aren't even in the same realm as some of these cruiserweight matches, like the bad comedy or, or things like that that have been present in spots like these on pay-per-view that are like throw away fill a bit of time agreed agreed and if this is the ceiling for cruiserweight wrestling in the wwe then that is a huge shame but i'm eternally grateful because it will always enhance the quality of the pay-per-view that i'm watching and that being said i i kind of was on the same page of both of you i didn't love this match i thought it was fine but i didn't think it went up to the level i thought it might have done and whether that is because of the lack of time or maybe because the crowd wasn't particularly into this match i think it's fair to say it didn't quite get there for me that being said there's some incredibly nasty moves and i mean that in the best possible way is a compliment towards the end of this match and that ddt as dan is right to highlight was was excellent and the closing sequence was very good i i think this match is definitely a, a thumbs up and a positive for the show but maybe not quite as good as it could have been backstage we cut to kurt angle and chris benoit uh, Angle tells Benoit to stay out of the way and they can win the tag team titles again. Angle says that when they work together, there's uh, nobody that can beat them. Benoit offers a handshake. Angle hugs him and tells them to let's get tough. We get a video package uh, which airs to set up Trish Stratus versus Victoria. Uh, this covers their history going back to their fitness, fitness modeling days. Victoria blaming Trish for from preventing her from getting a job with the WWE earlier. We head straight into the hardcore match with Trish Stratus defending the women's championship against Victoria. We're underway and Victoria wastes no time by pulling Trish down by her jacket. She grabs a broom and chokes Trish with a handle while JR asks if she's going to fly with it. Victoria rams Trish's head into a trash can lid. 
They go outside the ring, Victoria whipping Trish into the steps. They head inside and Victoria sets up a trash can in the corner, but Trish is able to catapult her into it, which gets two. Trish sets up an ironing board in the corner, whips Victoria into it for a two count. Trish lands some shots with a cane before Victoria flies back with a trash can lid. Victoria has a bloody nose. Trish knocks her out of the ring. Uh, Trish sends Victoria into the steel steps at ringside. Back inside, Victoria hits the power bomb. She grabs a mirror or a tray from under the ring and Trish hits the chick kick for a two count. They seem to maybe mess up a spot in the corner that looks a little bit messy, uh, but it sort of culminates in Trish grabbing a headlock and hitting a really horrible looking bulldog out of the corner where Victoria's head lands sort of across Trish's ribs, which did look pretty like uh, sort of messy in execution, but also not particularly pleasant for it either of them. Victoria gets a drop hold as Trish charges in with a cane. Victoria splays Trish with a fire extinguisher, follows with a snap suplex, which is enough for her to win the match and the championship at the seven minute mark. Rory, your thoughts? Yeah, I won't insult anybody's intelligence by saying this was the best match of the night because it clearly wasn't. But in many ways, it might well have been the one I enjoyed the most. I said two months ago on these shows that I was done uh, treating Trish Stratus matches you know, as if they had a golf handicap. You know, it's, it was time to stop doing that now. And it was time to just talk about her matches the same way we would talk about anybody else's you know, with the positives and the negatives. She had long since finished arriving by that point, And she has shown she is now a more than capable professional wrestler. As such, I don't think she looked out of place at all in this type of match i can't think of many other hardcore women's matches we've had i mean proper hardcore matches not the mind in the gutter ones and it was like she'd been working this style for many many years as well she gave as good as she got really mixed it up and she had the perfect foil i love the victoria character and i Use the word love very much advisedly. She is going to places that pro wrestling characters don't really go. And she reminds me a lot of Waylon Mercy from seven years ago. That she's crazed. No, she's a little bit of a psycho to use the oversimplistic descriptions. But there's a real underlying tension to this. Where where does all of this stuff come from? There is one hell of an origin story in here if they wanted to tell it. You know, and she's ripping Stacey Keebler's fingernails out or she's licking Stevie Richards face and he's talking about things like the smell of fear. And wow. And she plays it incredibly well. It could be, especially within the realm of professional wrestling, this could be really schlocky stuff. But she's making me believe it within the pantomimes of this stuff. And she deserves all the credit in the world for that. And she kept that character going throughout the match. Now, of course, there's a mirror underneath the ring. And of course, she's going to look at it. And she's, of course, she's going to try to smash it in a thousand pieces because she believes she's the fairest of them all. Now, why has she been forsaken? Why has Trish been given all the breaks? It's great stuff. It really is. Some negative points about this match. Number one, an ironing board. Really? Are we still fucking doing this in 2002? And you're absolutely right, Chris. It fell apart pretty badly towards the end. 
I don't know what they were going for by the turnbuckle in the last 30 seconds, but they didn't get there. And Victoria winning with a belly-to-belly suplex. I mean, a women's match ending with a belly-to-belly suplex. I'm sorry, I'll never, ever believe that. Just her widow's peak finisher that we were treated to towards the end of the month. Oh, mama, that one would have capped this one nicely. But supreme effort from both people. It was yet another pointer that the WWE women's division, it can go places, just as long as the person holding the compass chooses to take us there. But yet more promise being shown, and I just hope it gets delivered on because there's enough there for it to be. Dan, over to you. I'll be honest, I'm not quite as high on this match as Rory is. Although that may just be me coming at it from a different angle and that I wanted this to succeed so much. But as, get, as he's mentioned, you've got a very messy finish and too many spots in this match, which made me come out of the match and make me question it. The ironing board, the slightly awkward um, fire extinguisher spray, which Victoria took about 30 seconds too long to get working. Um you know, but then we've also got really hard Singapore cane shots to both to both women. And I know from experience, you know, from listening to ECW alumni talk about how much those hurt. And so I'm like, bloody hell, good, good on you to to go through with that spot. Fantastic stuff. Um, but yeah, I I wanted to like this match more because I I have been probably a, a bigger fan of Trish Stratus's work this year than most people just because I think she's got everything that WWE wants in a star and in Victoria I think we've got everything you want in a foil she's clearly even from a couple of matches on TV really really good and another great addition to this women's division and I honestly think that if they could hire and find another babyface to go alongside Trish and the returning Lisa you then compare that with Molly Holly, Jazz, and Victoria. That's a raw six, you know, of, of women right there that they could, if they wanted to, and I stress this again, if they wanted to make a real division out of that is on par with those SmackDown tag team divisions that we've been having for the last two or three months in terms of just intricacies and storylines and, and interests that could make raw a unique product rather than just a WCW slash mid 90s nostalgia piece and I want I'm all for that and I think this match could have quite got there but it's not quite there for me another point I just wanted to say Rory's praising the mirror I really didn't like the mirror spot because I generally thought that was going to be the finish and I think that would be a much more effective finish than a snap suplex with a snugger pin. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd go along with that, actually. It fits the um, story as well to end it with that. Yeah, great call. Yeah, I, I think this is probably one of those matches where the intensity sort of carries it. Like, I was more forgiving of the few things that went astray because earlier they were really beating the hell out of each other and you could feel that intensity coming across. The sloppiness really does sort of hold it down as well as the ending. I agree. The suplex that won, like after the weapon shots and even storyline wise, like you say, there's a 
better ending there. It really does, yeah, undercut this one slightly in terms of how good I you can honestly grade it. And in the spirit of Rory adhering to not handicapping Trish matches, like I don't want to say it was a good effort because that sounds reasonably patronising. That's not at all how I'm intending to come across. Like I think this was far better than uh, handicap ma- uh, not handicap matches, sorry, hardcore matches that we've had o- on pay-per-view or on TV with men's wrestlers. This was better than a lot of ha- uh, hardcore matches we've had in the past. Um, and largely, I think it's because the circumstances surrounding it in terms of the two of them being on pay-per-view in a feud that has meaning to it in a match that has meaning to it for a championship that's starting to have more meaning to it delivered that level of intensity that made this more important than the countless hardcore matches we've seen over the last few years that are completely throwaway and probably a perfect example of the kind of thing we were talking about with the last match in the sort of thing that they're there they've got things that pop you and then you immediately forget about them whereas i don't think this was that i think this was better than that there's still some issues with it but i think this is probably a mark of continued progress um both in terms of uh trish victoria and maybe the women's uh division within uh the wwe and particularly on raw and i just want to put on the record because if i don't somebody else will do it for me that victoria and stevie richards are now together now on television that's all i want to say that's all i want to say it's all i need to say Backstage, Raw General Manager Eric Bischoff is being interviewed by Jonathan Coachman. He says that he has outdone Stephanie McMahon by coming up with the concept of the Elimination Chamber. Big Show walks up to him and says that Bischoff has made a mistake in trading him, and he tells him to watch tonight as the Big Show walks out WWE Champion. God forbid. Can you imagine something as shit as that happening on a show like this? Heaven forfend. We also see current WWE Champion Brock Lesnar backstage with his manager Paul Heyman. Heyman says that he's pretty nervous because Lesnar's been coughing up blood since he has a broken rib. Heyman says he'll do everything in his power and promises to make sure that my client leaves here as the WWE champion. Anyway, on to our next match. WWE champion defends uh, Brock Lesnar defends his title against the Big Show. Lesnar is out to a great reaction, but visibly injured with his taped ribs the crowd strongly behind lesnar we get let's go lesnar chance right from the off show throws brock across the ring and splashes him in the corner lesnar takes him down they go out of the ring and big show drives uh, lesnar brib first into the steel post back inside lesnar hits a back suplex show misses a corner attack and uh, Brock comes back with an impressive German suplex. He ducks a clothesline, bumps into the ref, and knocks him down. Lesnar hits a belly-to-belly suplex. Heyman throws a chair into the ring since the ref is down, and Lesnar hits a stiff chair shot. Brock then picks up the big show and hits a F5 to a massive pop. A second referee comes down into the ring, and he begins counting the pin. One, two, and wait. Paul Heyman pulls the referee out of the ring and punches him down. Brock realises what's happening and chases after Paulie. Big Show is back up 
and hits a chair to the ribs and to the back of Brock Lesnar. Big Show follows by nailing a chokeslam onto the steel chair. They're really setting Brock up for this big babyface win here. Original referee Mike Yoda back in the ring and he counts the pin. One, two, and three. The Big Show has won the WWE Championship, defeating Brock Lesnar in a little over four minutes. Heyman jumps into Show's arms as they celebrate the title win, and a little part of my soul dies. <laughs> Dan Welling. I really want to hate this match, but I can't because I know how much this is hating on you, mate. I can't. This is just hilarious. I would have paid good money to hit to see your live reaction to this match. This would have been absolutely hilarious. It's not. It's not hilarious. It is. Uh, I'm finding very little funny in this it situation. Is, you know. <sighs> oh dear. Oh. So okay. All jokes aside. Objectively, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> So Lacey and Eric, like last month, basically summed this match up. And I think what most fans were thinking going into this was like, okay, they've just brought show in as this monster, as the monster of the month for Brock to do his feats of strength against. He'll look impressive and he'll get massive pops, which he did in front of a WWE Homer crowd. And then we can all go home and then we can build to the real main event for WrestleMania season and Lesnar can beat, I don't know, Eddie Guerrero at Armageddon or something. Um, and then we get this decision and it's it's baffling. Okay, you've, you compared, this is the the Goldberg losing his streak moment in WCW. And I think this is worse. I genuinely think this is worse. Say what you will about how they followed it up. But at least Kevin Nash, 1998, was really over with the fans, had consistently been booked strong, had consistently been placed as like one of the two or three biggest baby faces in the company throughout that whole second half of the year. And it was a big match. The Big Show has been a glorified jobber for the last pretty much the whole year. He has sucked the life out of most of the angles he's been in when he was part of the NWO. He's a basically almost a joke in the fact that he has all the utensils at his disposal and he can't get the job done. And he's the man. He is the man to dethrone a monster that they have been pushing for the last eight months as this unstoppable beast. He has mauled through the rock. He has mauled through the Undertaker in one of the most brutal Hell in a Cell matches of all time. He's retired Hulk Hogan. And he loses to the big show. And I know that we've got a lot of screwy with it. And I know that he technically took a choke slam on a chair. But it's still the big show, guys. And we'll go on to the explanations as to why they've done it. I think in the latter half of the show. But the fact that you've decided to end Brock Lesnar's undefeated streak to the big show is laughable and not just because it makes me giggle because Chris White's going through hell right now 
Look, it's an absolute fucking travesty. Let's be clear. Rory. Hold your, hold your horses, Chris. I'm going to give you two or three minutes to change your mind now. OK, so just use that time. Yeah, convince me that this is this is good. <laughs> I'm, I'm open to changing my mind. Uh, no, I'm out, I'm afraid. If that's what you want, <laughs> then you come to the wrong place. No. Would it make you feel any better if I were to tell you that the original plan for Survivor Series, the main event of Survivor Series, was Brock Lesnar going over Hulk Hogan for a second time? Does that make oh. you feel any better knowing that now? Come on, we missed out on that. <laughs> but of course, that doesn't work for me, brother. So that was out. And I'm going to dip my toe into this one. Would it make you feel any better if I were to tell you that the second main event plan for this one was Brock Lesnar versus Chris Benoit? I've, I've never felt lower. <laughs> oh, I tried. I can try. No. <laughs> uh, the ultimate losing battle. Yeah, this was, I'm going to use that word. You've used it again. A travesty. Absolute fucking travesty. Right. Brock Lesnar has been getting cheers almost since they came in, certainly since King of the Ring. Now, the crowd reaction at SummerSlam against The Rock came as a surprise to nobody. We said so on this programme. Right? And I have no issue whatsoever with them finally throwing up their hands and thinking, you know what, we can't keep this guy a heel. Right? He's attacking pregnant women. He's trying to maim some other bloke. And they're still cheering him. OK, we can't do it anymore. Let's officially make the guy a baby face. Everybody wants to cheer him. Everybody is cheering him anyway. Let's allow them to do so. So I'm OK with that. But you do not, I repeat, do not have to have him lose the title to do that. OK, this is a Vince McMahon problem. And it's hard to equate with what is babyface territory. But. He still thinks that the money is in the chase. You don't need to do that with Brock Lesnar. People aren't clamouring to see him work his way up to win the big one. He's already done it. He was cheered when he did so. You don't need to tell that story. You don't need to have him job to the big show in four sodding minutes. Tainted or not, you don't need to do it. And you don't need to go through this convoluted long-winded storyline for being suspended i know we'll get to that a bit later on but have Heyman's interference fail because i agree with what lacy said last month if you're going to turn brock face you cannot turn Heyman with him Heyman is uncheerable he has to remain a heel i'm okay with that have Heyman align with align with the big show and brock still finds a way to win do that then Brock has got, he's still got the belt, most importantly, and he can still get his revenge on Heyman. And when he still gets his hands on him a couple of weeks down the line, you know, the crowd get that cathartic moment without having to worry on top of that. When is Brock getting his belt back? They did not need to do this for anybody against Brock, anybody, but not least a man who on their own programming, on numerous occasions over the last three and a half years, they have pilloried for being out of shape not motivated, not very good in the ring. Now, he missed out on the residuals from the No Mercy video game, for goodness sake, because they sent him off to Fat Camp a couple of years ago. He's been up against it from the very first moment he came in, really, as Paul White, the big show. And they feel now that 
out of nowhere, he could be the WWE champion. Talk about making Rod for your own back. I mean, I don't much care if they find a way to work the way around the rematch clause and Brock gets the belt back, which will probably be at the Royal Rumble. I don't care. It's it's irrevocable at this point. I don't think they can return to where they were with Brock Lesnar. I think it's too late in a situation that didn't need to exist. I don't know who convinced who that this was the right way to go. No, did they panic a little bit that Brock is injured? Doesn't matter. Yes, okay, his ribs are fucked. He still managed to F5 the freaking guy in this match. Now, you can have Brock Lesnar matches go 30 seconds for the next couple of weeks if you want to. Now, people are paying to see him F5 fuckers. And if you can still do that, then you're 95% of the way there. Um, before I get too angry about this, I'm going to hand over to Chris White because there's only one person who people have really come to hear get angry about this. It's not me. And with all the respect in the world, because he deserves it, it's not Dan Welling. Is it, Chris? Is it? Okay, look, before I talk about the fucking big show, can I just say that none of this makes any sense on any coherent level? Like, okay, for what I'm about to say, it needs to be the big show. But in theory, insert any guy into his spot. What incentive does Paul Heyman have to go through with a screw job? So like, say like, imagine the big show is like a new wrestler. Okay. Like his, he hasn't been like jobbing out on raw and in fat camp for the last few years, he's come into SmackDown and he's like straight from WCW and he's like red hot as a heel. Like, and he's like, ah, well this guy's, fucking massive like there's no way my my brock is going to be able to like defeat this guy and he, I, obviously i want to back the winning horse so let's let's contrive to put this screw job in place for survivor series and i'll make sure my client leaves with a belt but brock proves him wrong after like 90 seconds like his ribs are fucked and he suplexes the big prick and f5s him so like at like but why <laughs> What? 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 Why does Heyman go through with it? Like, if he doesn't pull the ref out, then he just the like, Brock's just won. And like, what's he got to gain from any of this? I, like, the Big Show is so far beyond damaged goods at this stage that, like, in isolation, maybe I can accept his like little run on SmackDown. But, like, I don't think you can rehab him to this degree. He's, like, he's been so bad consistently pretty much since he debuted in this company. I don't understand, like, how this is coherent on any level before you get even into the fact that it's the fucking big show. And he's defeated the guy, like, the guy, like, your next big guy who you're building to be not necessarily as a face, but certainly a face of the company. I understand that you need to turn him and and maybe Heyman, like I I agree with Lacey. I don't think you can turn Lacey face, but you can do like a tweener thing for a while 
like you you can you like this didn't need to happen we hadn't reached boiling point with brock he wasn't like it wasn't like a detriment to him or the show this hurt fucking everyone it destroys so much credibility for brock i'm not having that like oh he took a choke slam on a chair like what what does that mean in reality like the main events a fucking chamber match where all the sides of the ring are still and people just take bumps on them for fun and they're not even near falls he gets choke slammed on a chair and he's done in four minutes what and it's the fucking big show i can't uh yeah, this I, I think everything about this sucked, even if you put any other guy in the big show spot and then you add in the fact that it's the fucking big show. And I just don't know. I don't know how we could, how do I move forward with this? Like, wh- what am I meant to do? Like, I don't know how. Like, do I I just I at this point, I paused the show and I just had to take a break. I was just like, I can't watch the rest of this show with two matches that I'm really looking forward to. And if I just sit here and watch them now, I'm going to be pissed off and I won't enjoy them. Like this, like fully ruined. What was I an otherwise enjoy? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Let's go that far. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, just want to say you're in full on rant mode here. And believe me, I know what that's like. Fully loaded 2000. I'm just going to put this on record. You said during that screed that you can't turn lacy face. Yes, you can. <laughs> Lacey, I'm, I'm he's very a, sorry. He's untenable the other way, that guy. He's, he's pure yeah. pure white meat is our Chris Lacey. Lacey will always be the working man's baby face to me. <laughs> okay. So, no, yeah, yeah, just that was, um, yeah, I we've talked about this for four times as long as the match was. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, was it was actually counting as we went. Can you believe that? It was like all of it was bad. Like the match itself, I thought was bad. The execution was bad. It was bad for Brock. I don't give a shit whether it's bad for Big Show or not, because he he should be a non-factor at this stage. Like he just isn't he isn't anything, let alone in a main event scene, let alone as the fucking WWE champion. I think it was bad for Heyman as well. I just I, I think everyone comes out of this worse off, uh, apart from Big Show, who I don't care about yeah really poor and after like quite a long break where i had to go away and and kind of get it out of my mind i came back to the show and after we have like Heyman jumping in the big show's arms and celebrate with him i come back to the show and i'm like okay look we've got a great tag match to go to we've got the chamber and you're really looking forward to that just sit down you're going to be fine you're going to enjoy the last hour of this show and then I get a shot backstage of Heyman and the Big Show running away, jumping in a limo together. And I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> They've ruined it again. Why did... Ah, yeah. Just embrace it, Chris. Just embrace it. It's, there's no point. You, you're fighting a losing battle here. No, just just learn to love it, basically, <laughs> as a wise man once said. This is, this is like the surefire way to turn me off from SmackDown. Like, <laughs> yeah, thank God they have a brand split. Thank God that he's only going to be on one show with this belt. (sighs) Back to it, I guess. And we get a video package of the last couple of months of the uh, WWE tag team titles. Recap from Benoit and Angle winning them at No Mercy to Edge and Mysterio winning the titles on SmackDown in that great two out of three falls match and bringing us through to this show where we move straight into the WWE tag team championship match for the evening. 
an elimination match, champions Edge and Rey Mysterio defending against Los Guerreros, Eddie and Chavo, and the team of Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit. Rule state here, as expected, if one guy is pinned or submitted, that whole team is eliminated. Benoit and Mysterio start things off. Mysterio gets a head scissors on Benoit and follows by a flapjack. Edge comes in to drop Angle with a forearm. It's back to Ray. He hits a springboard splash on Chavo as they're all tagging in very quickly here. Eddie comes in for a very noticeable pop, I would say, and keeps Ray in trouble uh, with some forearms to the back. The fast tags continue as Angle comes in and faces off with Ray before missing a corner charge, which sends him into the post. Angle throws Mysterio into the air and Ray takes quite a nasty looking bump where he lands on the back of his head. Clothesline by Angle on Ray as his team uh, control the action with Benoit dropping Mysterio with some more suplexes. Angle gets two with a back suplex and cuts off a comeback attempt with a clothesline. Angle grounds Ray with a front face lock before Ray eventually fights out. Angle looks for a German but Mysterio lands on his feet and hits a spin kick which takes Angle down. The Guerreros drop off the apron to avoid the tag from Angle, so Angle tags Benoit in against Edge, who's in with the hot tag. Edge cleans house and hits a face-first slam on Benoit and a belly-to-belly suplex. Edge throws Chavo over the top rope, and Mysterio... uh, I have to admit here, my notes say, Mysterio takes out Ray with a Hurricane Rana, which I don't think is what happened. So I don't know who he took out, because I can't remember. Unfortunately, this leaves Edge at the mercy of Angle and Benoit. It must have been Eddie. Who <laughs> gets a crossface ankle lock combination on Edge quickly. Ray has to make the save from this excellent spot before Edge taps. Mysterio hits a corkscrew dive over the top to take out Angle and Chavo on the floor. Uh, Benoit with a German suplex on Edge before Eddie hits a sunset flip into a German suplex. Benoit dumps Eddie over the top to the floor. Benoit gets the free German, uh, free rolling German suplexes on Edge before Eddie hits a frog splash on him for good measure. Benoit hits a flying headbutt off the top onto Eddie, who was trying to cover Edge, even though Benoit and Edge were the legal men. It was a bit of a weird spot. I don't know why Benoit would break up the cover. I don't know why Eddie was going for the cover while he wasn't legal. All a bit weird. Still great nonetheless. Angle gets an angle slam on Eddie. Benoit with a crossface on Edge and Angle with the ankle lock on Eddie. Chavo nails uh, Benoit uh, in the back of the neck with the title before uh, tossing the belt to Angle so that when Benoit gets up, he freaks out at Kurt, thinking that he had hit him with the belt. Mysterio gets a missile dropkick on Benoit, which knocks Angle out of the ring. Ray takes Chavo out on the floor. Uh, we have Edge and Benoit in the ring and Edge is able to hit the spin on Chris Benoit to eliminate the team of him and Angle from the match. After that fall, uh, Angle's in. He hits a German suplex on Edge and Benoit does the same to Rey Mysterio. Benoit gets a suplex on Chavo before Angle finishes things off with an Angle slam on Edge, leaving the other four men laying. Benoit and Angle bicker with each other as they leave the ring. Eddie goes for a pin on Edge and gets two. We get a sleeper to wear down Edge for a bit as the Guerreros isolate him in their corner. The Guerreros work Edge over for a while and he avoids a double clothesline and hits a flapjack on both men. Mysterio gets the hot tag. He comes in, head scissors to Chavo and a tilt-a-welt backbreaker to Eddie. Edge gets a spear on the Guerreros in the corner. It breaks down a bit, but eventually Ray hits the 619 on Eddie. The ref is telling Edge to get out of the ring. Chavo hits Ray in the back with a belt. 
Eddie takes advantage. He applies the lasso from El Paso submission and Ray taps for the, giving the Guerreros a submission victory and they walk away with the tag team championship belts. D- Dan, over to you. Look, this was absolutely 100% a very good match featuring five of the best wrestlers in the world and Chavo Guerrero, which is a little bit of a slight on him, but that's just the truth. They're all very familiar with each other, but the old but if we're being honest with each other, the regular attack matches between these two teams have been a lot better than when you insert a third team into the mix. And this reminds me a little bit about Rey Mysterio versus Eddie Guerrero at World War Three ninety seven, when a month later, a month earlier, sorry, in Halloween Havoc, those two had an absolute five star classic. And then a month later, we're having the rematch and everyone's going to go, this is going to be absolutely tremendous. I hope you're getting your DVRs ready to take this match. And it doesn't quite fulfill the hype. And I feel like this match was what happened with last month, where we had an absolute five-star classic between two of these tag teams. And they've just gone, let's just add the other one in and it's going to be absolutely amazing. And it never got into that gear. When you have a triple threat elimination tag, it's hard to build up those those tag team psychology spots in the way that you can with a regular tag. And as you alluded to in your notes, Chris, we have really bad legal man syndrome occasionally, and it's all confused and messy, and it never flows as well as a regular tag match, and it just couldn't get into great match territory for me. But that being said, all the wrestlers themselves performed their specific roles incredibly well. Angle and Benoit were incredible in office, as you would expect, because they are the two best wrestlers in North America at the minute, but they can't work together long enough to survive, continuing that story. And I really hope that's paid off in a in a one-on-one singles match, hopefully for, you know, some form of number one contendership for the new WWE champion. Edge and Ray are, you know, perfect babyface tag team. They can come back whenever they want, whenever they're down, really excellently. And Eddie and Chavo just work as together as the crafty heels. And they're, you know, ultimately, of these three tag teams, the most cohesive i think and the most like tag team orientated spot of them all remember can easily go to the cruiserweight division and edge clearly is earmarked for bigger things eddie and chavo just feel like that is their spot right now for the next three to four months and i think it's right that they came out for this, this match with the belts and i feel like we can now move on to hopefully having the w's traded to smackdown at one point we can get lost girls as the w's that'd be great that'd be fantastic for wrestlemania please but if this is like the final swan song tag team match of involving Nick's, these six men, I think it was a fitting send off, but not quite as good as a lot of people imagined. Rory. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Edge, Ray, Angle, and Benoit became their own worst enemies the very second the bell rang at the end of that match at No Mercy because everybody was backstage watching that one as wild as all of us were and thinking, yep, that's it. That's our tag team matches at pay-per-view sorted out for the next five or six months. Let's get them in there, some various combinations. And there you go. We don't need to worry. It doesn't always work like that. And the whole point about pro wrestling is being there for when the moment happens. Obviously, wrestlers, the quality of Angle, Benoit, Ray, Benidge, can (laughs) can have a five-star match 
every so often. And at no mercy, we were treated to it. But these things don't happen every day, and nor should they. Uh, these guys, they're entitled to an off day or what for them passes for an off day. You know, they are allowed to have matches which are merely very, very good, which this one was. And I think people have been rather unfair to this match because of that. I think we need to take it in the fabled wrestling 20 years ago vacuum rather than comparing it to what we got at No Mercy, because that was once in a year stuff as i'm sure we'll be discussing when we do our end of year award show in just a month or so's time and it's wrong to expect that sort of thing more than once a year once every two or three years even so let's just talk about the very good tag team match we got here whereas dan says everybody knew what they needed to do gave themselves an extra five or ten percent wiggle room to just go beyond it but no more than that we weren't talking about the rory red zone at this match at any point it was all there at their equivalent at seven and a half eight out of ten and for example kurt angles eight out of ten is far greater than chavo guerrero's eight out of ten but they all mesh together fairly well and the problems i have this with this match again only really surround the way in which only really surround the way it was books i think taking benoit and angle out first whilst i get it you know they're the big team who bicker they're not the champions and this is the ecw where the champions get eliminated first all of that understood but the life went out of the crowd at that point i mean angle and benoit were still nominally heels but that's not how the crowds treat them indeed by the end of the month on smackdown they're de facto baby faces now and the crowd did lose interest after that one and i think Edge and Ray and Eddie and Chavo, really, at their exchanges, I think they knew it. And there's not a whole lot of memorable moments from the last 10 minutes of this match, whereas there were plenty in the first 10, you know, that triple suplex spot in the middle of the ring, for example. And the Guerreros winning, heels or not, was treated with little more than a whimper. Which is unfair because I think they've done some very good work together. And I think both Eddie and Chavo are in a decent place at the moment. As I said a couple of months ago, I'd like to see more from Eddie. But now, tag team champion, that's okay. Come back to me in May or June next year and he's still there. I might change my tune. But for now, it's fine. Uh, They could have got there with a little bit more oomph and maybe a triple threat elimination tag match wasn't the way to go maybe this could have been one fall to a finish maybe they over survivor series themselves a little bit here there's yet another example where they just thought well they didn't need to think there's still very very good action from six yes six very very talented wrestlers but the execution wasn't quite there from the people with the pens but the people who had to actually do the business in the ring still very very good um Let's not ding them for working miracles every single month now. Yeah, I thought this was a very good match. And yeah, maybe we are slightly spoiled by the highest echelons of the matches that these guys have had in the recent past and how good we know they can be. Um, I basically, Dan, at one point, I had like bullet pointed some thoughts on the match and you pretty much read them like verbatim i said i'd put like angle 
and Benoit are basically the perfect sort of bickering team. Eddie, Edge and Ray are basically the perfect babyface team and Eddie and Chavo are the perfect crafty heel team. And that was one of the elements of this match that I think works so well. Um, and I think why, at least from a story perspective, it did make sense having Angle and Benoit go out first. Um, yeah, it, I think they've had any combination of these guys have had better tags um but this was still very good and i do think yeah the triple threat elimination is hard to maybe build up certain sequences in the same way you would in a regular tag but i think that this like being a a very good match instead of a great match is absolutely no slight to any of the people involved in it or the quality of it in isolation so I think this was a, a big positive for the card, but we all know that um, they can deliver uh, more than this and, and have done. And I think all six guys will do. And like you say, Dan, especially if the Dudleys head over to that tag division at some point in the near future. And we have that, but the baby face Dudleys versus Los Guerreros. I think that's something that we would uh, really see some excellent stuff out of uh, all of them once more. Before we head to our main event, we have Christopher Nowinski here. He comes out and uh, gets some heat by uh, trashing New Yorkers and their sports teams before eventually Matt Hardy version one is here to join us. Matt, facts for you here, keeps the room at a toasty 75 degrees and he only drinks low fat milk. He teases uh, uh, turning face here by saying that New Yorkers aren't stupid, but then uh, clarifies this comment and uh, classifies them as losers because the arena is not overflowing with matitude. Nowinski says that they aren't losers, they're just too stupid to know any better and uh, eventually after some bickering the two men agree that New Yorkers are both losers and stupid. Suddenly we hear some familiar sirens followed by a holler if you hear me and here comes none other than Scott Steiner making his first appearance since the closure of WCW. This gets a huge pop from the crowd. Skliner hits a clothesline on Nowinski and a belly-to-belly suplex on Hardy. He follows with an overhead suplex on Nowinski and uh, a belly-to-belly, another belly-to-belly on uh, Hardy as the crowd, tra- crowd chants Steiner for him. He dumps Nowinski over the top to the floor and he follows by uh, launching Hardy over the top onto Nowinski with a gorilla press slam and done. Uh, he then follows with some of his trademark push-ups he gets on the mic and delivers as expected the stein uh, the classic steiner catchphrases rory i mean big addition here what, what do we make of scott steiner being brought in and uh one sort of like the signing of steiner and him debuting in this uh this manner and where and sort of i guess wider what next yeah mm. My utterances there should tell you all you need to know, but I will <laughs> I will develop on them for the sake of quality podcasting. So Scott Steiner, I should say about his deal, is 14 dates a month. So he will be working house shows, but not too many of them, apparently. And they have not yet decided which brand he will be on, which have been making great playoff on the TV shows this month after the pay-per-view. Because they have to do a bidding war, don't they? I'm not sick of that enough over the last four months. Anyway, bringing in Scott Steiner, I'm of the opinion, and again, I think it's probably a rare one, 
that he is somebody they should have tried to get best they could. Time Warner contract be damned. March of April last year. Because I think Scott Steiner would have looked far better as probably the biggest name they could have on the WCW side in the invasion, rather than a supposed bona fide big name on his own that he is now. Yes, he was one of the stars of WCW in their last 18 months or so, but let's be honest, by that point, it was very much big fish, small pond stuff. And here, where he is the main attraction, I think you can see the flaws. His character is identical to how it was in WCW when we left off in March 2001. And nobody wanted to be any different. No, people want the muscles. No, they want him kissing them. They want holler if you hear me. They want him to be a hookup. It's all about the freaks. They haven't WWE eyes him, many because it's difficult for me to say, in any way, shape or form. And that's refreshing. But it feels a bit the circus has left town for me with Scott Steiner at this point. And I don't think he's up to it. It's only bits and pieces, so it's unfair to judge completely. But the mood music at the moment, it's minor key stuff of what I've seen on Raw and SmackDown from him. He's only been in a couple of minor scuffles and he's looked like he's been close to blowing up. And there's no way that he's going to be able to work a hard, high impact, 50 minute style match with a WWE heel like Triple H, for example, without being shown up even worse no matter who they put him against because he doesn't really mesh with anybody I can think of what they're going to do having with Booker for a couple of months I can't see that happening either that's almost admitting defeat so (laughs) they're up against it here with Scott Steiner his debut was very well done got the big MSG pop but that's out the way now and it's a case of what happens while he's here and the early signs for me at least are not good I mean, this is like, I don't want to go too far into the realms of just fantasy booking, but you could so easily have used him in the big show spot, like, and gone back a few weeks, right? Like, there'd be a scenario oh, where... Oh, just so, so desperate, Chris. It's happened, mate. It's happened. Well, they shouldn't have done. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that might stick to the wall, eh, mate? Dan, your thoughts on Scott Steiner? Uh, I'm probably going to hold out judgment on this a little bit longer um, because, again, he's he's, he's just his debut at the minute. I I do agree with Rory that he's not at the level of a Goldberg or a Sting or probably even a DDP in a, a name that a casual WWE fan would know from the other company. And if they do have any vague recollection of him and never watched WCW, they'll just be going, bloody hell, what the hell's happened to that guy from that tag team that was once on in 1993? So is he worth the hullabaloo that they're going to put behind him? In my opinion, he isn't. But now that he's here and you've worked, like I always try to say the msg pop is what you listen to if you're gonna try and work out how popular a guy is gonna be on the main roster and he got 
probably one of the biggest props of the night. So he's going to be inserted into a main event program soon. It's probably going to be on Raw because SmackDown's got enough. And do you honestly want to see Scott Steiner versus The Big Show for the WWE title, Chris? I don't think you do. So it's going to be Steiner versus Jericho, the Triple H Flair Axis, whoever it's going to be on Raw. And I, I think that probably would be okay in a short burst but as long as they you know try to ensure that he won't blow up and they account accommodate for this and they don't try and force him into something he's not capable at the minute of with his his physical limitations this version of Scott Steiner can still put on very good entertaining matches as he showed with Goldberg in the dying days of WCW and some of his matches with Jarrett so and DDP as well so look he's got some qualities in the ring shall we say even with this you know ballooned version of himself and he has got charisma so this isn't going to be as i'm not as doubtful as rory is but i'm still not exactly buying a ticket to go and watch him let's put it that way that i would be for goldberg turning up for example With that, we've made it to our main event of the evening as the Elimination Chamber structure is lowered to the ring. Triple H interviewed backstage by Jonathan Coachman, Ric Flair standing by his side. Hunter talks about how he's going up against five of the best uh, in the business, but he's still going to walk out of MSG. It's still the best, still the game, and still the world heavyweight champion because he's that damn good. Uh, Raw general manager is... uh, inside to put over the brutality of the structure and he goes over the rules which takes quite a long time uh quick summary of them are as follows elimination chamber rules four superstars confined in the internal chambers two will start in the ring every five minutes another will join the match and elimination occurs after a pinfall or submission and the last remaining superstar will be the world heavyweight champion chris jericho booker t kane and Shawn michaels are the men who will be locked away in the chamber meaning RVD will start things off with Triple H. Interestingly, JR tells us that Hunter has an 0-6 record at Survivor Series. We're underway and RVD gets a spinning heel kick early on. Hunter comes back with a nice knee smash. Van Damme gets a back body drop over the ropes that send Triple H onto the steel outside the ring. RVD whips Hunter in the face. Uh, whips Hunter face first, sorry, into the steel wall of the chamber and Hunter's bleeding already. It only took him about two minutes. RVD hits the rolling thunder from the ring over the top onto Hunter on the steel grating outside. Van Damme tries to climb the pod above Jericho, but Jericho grabs his leg to stop him. Van Damme jumps off the top rope and uh, onto Hunter onto the steel grate and it looks like he takes quite a nasty fall in doing so. The first five-minute interval is up, and the next entrant is Chris Jericho, who walks right into a spin kick from Van Dam. A standing moonsault by RVD gets two on Jericho. RVD jumps off the top with a standing side uh, with a side kick and a clothesline, which sends Jericho over the top. RVD uh, goes at Jericho, who uh, moves out of the way, so RVD uh, clings onto the side of the chamber, which is quite cool. RVD jumps back onto Jericho and takes him down. Hunter hits a clothesline on Rob Van Dam, knocks him down. We get a back suplex by Jericho onto RVD and the heels are working together for a few minutes. They whip RVD back first into the steel chamber several times. RVD tries to make a comeback, but Hunter drops him with a DDT. Next interval's up and our fourth man, Booker T. 
he uh, has some punches and kicks for Hunter uh, and Jericho. Uh, he knocks them out of the ring and hits the spin of Rooney. We get a spin kick by Booker onto RVT, RVD, which gets two. RVD uh, comes back with a step over heel kick for a two on Booker and a jump in side kick by Booker gets another two for him. Hunter gets back involved and is dropped by an axe kick from Booker T. RVD gets a drop kick on Jericho. Van Damme goes up top. And uh, but then he looks behind him and it's an empty pod. So he jumps to the top of the pod. Van Damme jumps off the top and uh, hits a splash onto Triple H. But it's quite an awkward landing. And you can see visibly his knee lands right in the throat of Triple H. It was a really nasty looking move. Didn't look like he could extend his legs out like he normally would on a frog splash or even just a regular splash because of the chamber being so close to his head. It looked like he didn't really have the room he needed. And yeah, the landing was slightly messy because of it. Triple H is down and grabbing his throat and kicking his feet into the mat. And referee El Hebner immediately holds up the X sign to signal we've got an injury. Booker hits a missile drop kick on RVD uh, and uh, pins him uh, to get the first elimination of the match. And JR wonders if RVD has a knee injury. Uh, Jericho with a bulldog on Booker. He misses a lion salt on Booker, gets a spine buster on Jericho for two. Triple H is down, clearly trying to get some win back after sustaining his injury. Uh, Kane is the fifth entrant in the match. Close lines for Jericho and Booker. He works over Jericho on the grating outside of the ring and he sends Jericho face first into the cage. He whips Jericho really nastily through the plexiglass that was used as one of the covers for the chamber and it looks and sounds really nasty. Booker's in the ring working against Kane. He bounces off the ropes and Jericho hits a low blow and uh, Kane hits a choke slam on Booker. Jericho hits a lion slaw on Booker and is able to eliminate him. Kane throws Jericho out the ring and Jericho's bleeding now from the forehead. They're outside the ring and Kane slams Jericho back into the ring. Uh, a punch from Kane knocks down Triple H and a suplex on Kane gets Jericho too. Triple H goes to the top rope and Kane slams him off the top. Jericho comes in with a missile drop kick on Kane and the fans begin to chant for HBK. The time minute, uh, five minute interval is up and Shawn Michaels enters as the sixth and final man into the match. Michaels is on fire. Now is a flying forearm smash to knock Kane down. Kane whips Michaels into the corner and uh, Shawn takes his classic upside down bump. Uh, Kane gets a... Uh, choke into a slam on Jericho he uh, hits Michaels with a choke slam and follows with another choke slam on Triple H to round things off he gets a third choke slam on Jericho as well three in a row uh, Triple H avoids the tombstone and shoves Kane uh, away Michaels capitalizes with sweet chin music super kick Triple H hits a pedigree and Jericho hits the lion salt as all three men work together to eliminate Kane Jericho sends Michaels over the top with a clothesline and whips him into the cage a few times. The heels work together, uh, working over Michaels for a bit, with Jericho hitting a running splash to the back of Michaels. Uh, they send Michaels repeatedly into the cage, and Michaels is busted open. Michaels comes back with a clothesline on Triple H that sends him over the top of the rope back into the ring. Jericho with a back body drop that sends uh, Michaels back first onto the steel. Back inside, Michaels hits a forearm smash on Hunter and does a kip up to a big pop. Jericho with a bulldog on Michaels and follows with a line salt for, for a two count, which gets a nice near fall. 
Michaels gets his foot up to prevent a corner attack and hits a moonsault off the top, leading to a two on Jericho. Michaels gets a Boston Crab on Jericho, but Hunter uh, gets in the way and hits a DDT on Sean, leading to a two count. Jericho and Hunter start brawling, with Hunter getting a clothesline and a face buster for a two count. Hunter sets Jericho up for a pedigree, but Jericho fights out of it and applies the walls. Michaels is back to his feet, and he nails Jericho with a sweet chin music to eliminate Chris Jericho. So as expected, we're down to Shawn Michaels versus Triple H. A spinebuster for Triple H follows by a back body drop over the top rope that sends Michaels crashing into the steel on the outside. Triple H gives Michaels a slingshot into one of the plexiglass pods, which again shatters and both guys are a bloody mess. Back in the ring, Hunter nails a face buster and follows by a clothesline that sends Sean over the top to the floor. Michaels hits the slingshot that sends Triple H into the cage and a clothesline sends Hunter back inside. Michaels climbs the top rope and then goes up once more and goes to the top of the pod. He jumps off with a flying elbow drop to the chest. Michael sets up for switching music, but Hunter catches the boot and hits a pedigree, and the crowd is booing a lot. Triple H is too tired to get the cover quickly. He slowly calls over with one arm and gets the one, two, and Sean gets the shoulder up. Listen, everybody in Madison Square Garden! attempt from Triple H. Michaels is back in the corner, Hunter's up, and Michaels hits the sweet chin music for the one, two, and three. Shawn Michaels is the new World Heavyweight Champion after nearly 40 minutes. Rory, what did you make of our main event? As always, Chris, chapeau my friend for all your notes on that one. You always seem to get the super epic matches, don't you? The way it falls, but expertly done, my man. It was as if I was right back there again two weeks ago, so have yourself a well earned break for a few minutes. But where to start? Where to start? Um, okay, let's develop the points I made earlier on about the general elimination chamber match. Okay. It was only really Rob Van Dam who used the structure in any meaningful way. You know, he 
saw what he could do with the grating. He was able to hop onto the mesh doing the old Spider-Man thing. Everybody else kind of treated this as a standard match. Yeah, you had the plexiglass spots here and there, but by and large, they weren't doing a whole lot different. I think that's my first real issue with this match. That they, through no real fault of their own, because this is the first time and they will have many more opportunities to get it right, as I said, maybe even a fair combination of these guys, the structure just happened to be there. And that's a black mark. Or at least at least the brown mark. Not the brownest mark in this match. We'll get to that later on. Uh, another problem was it being for the world title. Now, I shouldn't doubt, no, I shouldn't wager there were too many marks in the MSG crowd. <laughs> You'd be hard pushed to find any over the last 25 years or so, but probably not too many. But even those who were there, they would have told you outright that Booker. Kane and Jericho had less than zero chance of winning this match. Absolutely not going to happen. RVD, okay, 33 to one shot. Now you're passing the betting shop on Saturday morning. Now you see the extra fiver in the bottom of your coat. You know, you do the obligatory way when you see it in there and you think, why not? But otherwise, there are only two people who are winning this match. And that was a problem too. I will hold off on my third problem until we get there. But these guys went at it for 40 minutes. And other than RVD, which I'll come back to in a second, you know, we're talking for 40 minutes here. Okay. Yes, obviously the introductions were staggered, but everybody in this match, they were here to work and no quarter asked or given. It didn't feel like an especially different match to a six pack challenge, if you like. But my God, they made every bit of it count. And nobody in this match could be accused of dogging it or half-arsing it or being overawed by the occasion even. So I want to put that on the record right here. Say what I will about Triple H and say what I have and say what I'm going to say about him in the future. But much like in May 2001, I have nothing but infinite, infinite credit to the man for gutting it out after that injury. I've got a quote here from the WWE website where he described what actually happened when RBD's knee landed across his neck. I quote, it caused swelling on the inside of my throat, which closed down my airway. This sounds extreme, but the doctor explained to me that if somebody dropped a 10 or 20 pound weight on you from a few feet in the air and it hit you on the throat, it could crush your windpipe and kill you instantly. Rob tried to protect me the best he could and I rolled with the shot. My neck's very thick from training it. All those things protected me and a bit of luck too. I basically sat bloody in the hospital in my gear until 11 or noon today, the day after the show. I was still in my gear, covered in blood with confetti on my back. And Triple H for five to eight minutes, and even right at the very end of the match, when he has to get in position for the final switch in music, he is still favouring his throat. And yet he's still gutting it out. Because all the things you can and should accuse this guy of, you cannot for one second say that he doesn't love this business, doesn't respect it every ounce that he's got within his six foot four frame and you cannot absolutely cannot take anything away from him for that it's staggering lesser mortals would have been finished off by that one but he stuck it out to the bitter end and magnificent i do wonder if rvd was supposed to be eliminated the way he was again much like in the previous match 
a person the crowd wanted to stay in for a long time went early and it did take a quite quite a while for everything to be brought back and it does make you wonder that he's only eliminated by a missile drop kick from Booker T really Rob Van Dam after all how far he's come over the last few months that's enough to get rid of him the first one Hmm. Then there was a little bit of marking time until it got down to the final two, which it was always going to. And nothing against Kane or Booker or Jericho more than kept up their end. But for me, at least, there was a little bit of clock watching here because uh, we're going to get Michael's H, uh, Michael's HBK. <laughs> it's like Ray attacking himself earlier. Going to get HBK, Triple H. Just take us there. And then we come to it. And we get the finish we get. With HBK winning cleanly with a super kick in the middle of the ring. And I was asking myself this question when it happened. Is pro wrestling about the here and now? Or is it about what comes next? I had problems with Michaels winning this match because his story has been told and it was told perfectly just three months ago. You can't beat what happened at SummerSlam. I said at the time we were fearing for the man's life during that match and managed to eke out a win. Now, that's all he needs to do in 2002. We don't even know at this point if he's coming back full time yet or not. The mood music again suggests that he will be, but we don't know that at this point. It hasn't been confirmed. I have no problem with Shawn Michaels being a world champion at all. Nobody deserves it more, but not here and not now and not yet. Just while SummerSlam is fresh in our minds, he doesn't need another win over Triple H. He doesn't need to beat him with the super kick. And I was thinking that maybe they could have done it with RVD at this point. I said at the September show that RVD probably needs to wait his turn, but you could have done it here. And you could have had Triple H the next day on Raw or whenever he comes back from his injury saying that, yes, you beat me, but look at the circumstances and look what you promo the next day on Raw and that only confirmed it because my fucking hell that was rough for Michaels I tell you he was trying to be 97 DX Michaels and he was pushing the sarcasm and the pushing the self-deprecation and pushing Mr. Sardonic and it just did not work at all I swear if he said and new champion just one more fucking time but then like I said I went back and watched this match again and I saw Michaels hit the switch of music and I heard that pop I didn't think anything was going to rival the Scott Steiner pop 40 minutes earlier. I was wrong. The place went fucking mental. And Michaels got his big celebration. And regardless of the fact that he was wearing a St. Trinian's haircut, and regardless of the fact that he was dressed in a Coventry City away kit from 1980, 1981, all of that important stuff taken into account. Now you have Shawn Michaels with the World Heavyweight title belt saying thank you at the end of the match. And on November the 17th, 2002, that was enough. Here we are now on November the 30th, 2002, and it might not be. But does that really matter? Dan, what did you make of this main event? Um, for a very first Elimination Chamber match, obviously it's, it's reasonably hard to, to grade. I mean, 
it's not as good as Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker in the first Hell in the Cell match. Let's put it this way. It's not as good as Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon or Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels in like the early ladder matches. But I still think this was a match that was good enough to warrant the Elimination Chamber being a, a spectacle we look forward to rather than a spectacle we have to put up with because WWE have invested so much money into it. Let's put it this way. Um, and it's, and again, I agree with all of Rory's points that he made regarding the Chamber match itself. RVD was the standout performer in this match because he was the only one that used the structure properly and actually with, with some creativity. The middle was very boring because Triple H was injured and we were waiting for Shawn Michaels. And I also think that the plexiglass spots were actually a little bit overdone because you either do that once or not at all. Because when you do it twice, the plexiglass just looks rather ropey and a bit cheap and they kind of diminish the spots. However, <laughs> as soon as we get to Jericho, Shawn Michaels and Triple H, this match really to kick into a higher gear for me. And many is down for the Shawn Michaels for obvious reasons. I mean, everyone knows who listened to the August edition of this show, why thoughts on Shawn Michaels' comeback and the story they told in that match. The camera angle that they did for Jericho's elimination was spot on. The switcher music literally comes out of nowhere. It's, it's angled perfectly. It's a brilliantly good elimination. And I disagree with Rory in that I do think that Shawn Michaels needed to beat Triple H with a super kick in the middle of the ring because the finish at SummerSlam had a little bit of question marks about it. Shawn Michaels didn't hit that clean finisher last time. He won it with a roll-up. Can Shawn Michaels beat Triple H on their best days? And ultimately, Triple H was too weak to beat Shawn Michaels with his own finisher. Shawn Michaels wasn't, and he won the match, and he's won the title. So... I believe that match that finish warranted. However, I do question, and I did have the same debate in my mind about whether that finish should have been used in this match. Because again, I would feel like a personal hypocrite if I bemoaned and ranted and raved about Hulk Hogan winning the title in April, but what is effectively a nostalgia run. And then I'm absolutely cheering to the top of my lungs and bashing my head against the ceiling because Shawn Michaels has done exactly the same thing seven months later. So am I a hypocrite for saying that I'm happy that Shawn Michaels has got this victory and yet I despised Hulk Hogan winning the title in exactly the same way? And I, I do think I am a little bit, but only for a couple of reasons why I can sort of get away with it in my head. One is that obviously you've seen from these two matches, his performances wise, Michaels, the in-ring performer, I don't think has lost a beat since his initial injury in 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 terms of an overall performance, and th- and he's lost some of his elasticity and his ability to to throw himself around the ring. But he has gained a little bit of more storytelling. His selling is better, and the investment in his matches is better than what he used to be in say '95, '96. So. The in-ring performer Shawn Michaels deserved the belt more than the in-ring performer Hulk Hogan in 2002. And second of all, my big issue with Hogan winning the belt in April compared to what it is now is that there is another brand. There is 
another champion, another club of stars that I can watch and see the future of this company in, in Lesnar, in Angle, in Benoit, in Edge, in Mysterio, on SmackDown. And I really hope that the big show is just a very, 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 very small blip in that journey compared to what we're getting on Raw, where if this is going to be the brand of nostalgia, if this is going to be the brand that is desperately going to be calling back WCW's lost fan base from the mid-90s, Shawn Michaels and Scott Steiner potentially could be an interesting storyline to do. And if they want to do the final one-on-one singles blow-off match for the title at WrestleMania with Triple H, or even at the Royal Rumble, or even the next pay-per-view, who knows? This is going, that's going to be one hell of a match. And can't wait to see it. Because, yeah, I thought Shawn Michaels in this match deserves that moment in the sun for all he did at SummerSlam. And I do think that pop was a thank you moment. And sometimes you just have to say, to wrestlers, let alone fan base. Not everything has to have a long-term storytelling plan. Sometimes it is just a case of going, thank you. And that at least I can now understand why the Fed put the belt on Hogan back in April. Yeah, I think as a match, I'm, like I said, probably up, up top, slightly higher on it than both of you. I do agree, Dan, that it really kicked up a notch when we got down to um, Jericho, um, Hunter, and uh, Michaels, like the story there about the hip, sort of the heels teaming up and then ego ultimately getting in the way, I thought was really good. Um, I think the story of Michaels coming back to win the world title in his second match back in four years is is great. I don't know. Yeah, I. I, I I do think comparisons to Hogan maybe are a little bit amiss in that one is nostalgia and like one, I don't know, one felt like a cash grab nostalgia run and this feels like more, it feels like there's more heart to this, if that makes sense. And maybe it's just because I didn't grow up in the Hogan era, so I don't have the I don't have the strong positive feelings to that iteration of that character that some people do that maybe the nostalgia for Hogan doesn't impact me in the same way, but having Sean back and having him as champion did something to me on an emotional level. Um, And I think this match just had so much, like I knew the story was Sean. I was waiting for Sean, but the work in the early going, I think they did well to have Hunter in there against RVD in the early going. Obviously, you never wish injury on a performer, but the jeopardy after Hunter was gutting through quite a nasty injury for clearly over 20 plus minutes. And there were several times in the match where he had trouble catching his breath and that had me on the edge of my seat. Um, the three guys bleeding in this match, which I think on occasion may feel overblown, but it didn't here. I think it suited the spectacle of having this as the first chamber match. I like will double down on my idea of like, this shouldn't be something that rivals the brutality of hell in a cell. However, it should be 
uh, a challenge that I, I, I do think having the championship up for grabs in this contest makes sense to me. It's something, it's a gauntlet that the champion has to run, has to survive. And I don't think that Armageddon Hell in a Cell match that we talked about earlier should ever have been used in that scenario. This is that match to me. And I think you've now got the ready-made story where we get round to the second Elimination Chamber match in a year and the champion's going in and it's like, well, a champion has never retained in this scenario. And then you get a new champion next year. And this this could be the pay-per-view where you really kickstart that sort of road to WrestleMania in the sense that, like, you put the belt in the chamber. That's where you put the belt on the guy that's going to be holding it through to WrestleMania to be dethroned by whoever wins the Rumble. You, you you can, maybe not in this instance, but I think they will be planning that far ahead and use this to set up the Rumble, which sets up WrestleMania, and that's your payoff for the year. I uh, I think it's, I do agree this wasn't as good as maybe some other first ever type matches that we've had, but I think everyone here really delivered, and I thought this was an excellent match. It was my favourite match of the night. Largely, that is down to the emotion surrounding Michael's winning, but I thought that was a brilliant moment and a great way to end the show and almost enough to make me forgive the WWE Championship match earlier in the night. The arena is uh, full of confetti as Michael celebrates with his world heavyweight title. Replays of the uh, end of the uh, finish and uh, Michael posed with the title. JR freaks out about Michael's making the big comeback to win the belt, and the show goes off the air. So, Rory, over to you for your overall thoughts on Survivor Series and a score rating out of 10. This one should be very, very easy to score as an 8 out of 10. And that's I had in mind when I first watched the show live, when I went back and watched again our review copy just before we did this show. But then I thought to myself, is this really an 8 out of 10 show when SummerSlam was for me a 9 out of 10? And is there really only one points difference between the two on a show here that didn't have an outstanding match? Had many very, very good ones. Not an outstanding match. They had some questionable booking decisions. And one which has probably finished off one of our contributors for good. And in front of a MSG crowd who sometimes weren't really the MSG crowd we've come to expect. But it is still an 8 out of 10 show. There is more than enough here to keep you interested, to keep you excited, multiple viewings. There are enough good to very good performances. There's enough different things going on. We've got our first proper women's hardcore match, for example. You know, we've got a three-way elimination match for the tag team titles. We've got the goddamn elimination chamber. And when the pops come, Scott Steiner, Michael's victory, they really do come. So this show for me isn't just behind SummerSlam. It's quite some way behind it. But I don't think we should be the sort of people who start comparing marks against shows because it's unfair on what we actually see. And we're here to review the shows as they are. So 
basically to cut a very long story short and overcomplicate what I could have just said 90 seconds ago, Survivor Series 2002 in the books, no arguments, eight out of ten. Dan, over to you. Well, it is an eight out of ten show, Roy, but I would just say you just underscored SummerSlam. Uh, that would be my comeback. Uh, <laughs> it would indeed, Dan. What did you give SummerSlam again? Go for, no, no, don't remind me. Don't you, you don't need remind me next month. <laughs> nah, it's this is I think the epitome of an eight out of ten show. It's it's got a very questionable booking decision, which overall drags down what could have been a very high nine, ten out of ten show because it has got memorable moments, very good matches, arguably a great match in the Elimination Chamber if you wanted to focus more on the the, the moment and the overall journey to the moment. But there's too many iffy moments in the show to, to give it a nine. So it is the bang on eight out of ten. Very, very good show. Go and watch this show. Can I come in and ruin it by giving it a seven? Yes, you you may, but explain yourself. I well, can't think why he's gone lower than us, Dan. Why on earth has he done that? <laughs> no, what, what, what waiting method has he used here, I wonder? What 500-pound so, waiting method has he used? Very good. My my waiting method is this, the same as always. So I have my gut instinct, and that's that this is a 7, 8 out of 10. Then I – so I start on a 5, give it plus 1 for the tables match, give it plus 1 for the cruiserweight. I don't think I'm going to plus or minus for the women's match. I don't think it's good enough to warrant a whole point up, nor is it bad enough to be a detriment. So we're going to stick on seven. We're going to knock two off for the WWE Championship match. And then we're going to add one back on for the tag match and one for the main event. And that takes me quite nicely to seven out of ten. I think that's I don't think me knocking two off is because that's one for the match and one for the the booking decision and the sort of grand scheme connotations of it you know like i think this was a really really great show apart from those five minutes right slap bang in the middle um i think it was an excellent main event i i'm definitely higher on it than you two but yeah that big big show brock lesnar match just the end of that on that the end of lesnar's run and all of that it's just such a waste of so many good things and it's for the fucking big show so for me, I can't give this more than a 7 out of 10. Before we uh, wrap up for the month, I know there's a couple of things we'd like to discuss from the post-pay-per-view TV, um, particularly uh, Paul Heyman, Big Show and Brock Lesnar, all the happenings on SmackDown with the fallout of Survivor Series. Uh, early in the show on the uh, post Survivor Series edition of SmackDown, Heyman comes out to Lesnar's music. He's wearing the WWE title, Mox Brock's entrance, complete with the bounce on stage. Michael Cole hits us with the line, I think Heyman is mocking Lesnar. No shit, mate. Heyman talks about having the it factor that separates you from the rest of the locker room, which applies to himself. He prepared Lesnar for everything he was going to do and is responsible for all of his success. But the monster stopped listening to Dr. Frankenstein. It takes more than physical attributes to be on top of the mountain. Heyman tells us he's orchestrated the greatest inside job in sports entertainment history. Big Show is here and uh, Heyman's kneeling down to hand him the title. He uh, heaps praise on Lesnar. And as they go to leave, Lesnar's here, interrupts with a chair and lays shows out. 
we get some backstage shenanigans with Stephanie and Paul and threatening that Heyman's going to be sorry, Lesnar's going to be suspended or fired, and Big Show's got a scheduled match against uh, Edge for the title later tonight, and due to Brock's attack, he's trying to get out of it, but nevertheless, the match will go ahead. Before we get to that, though, we uh, get a nice uh, backstage confrontation between Brock Lesnar and Matt Hardy, who uh, (laughs) Matt tells Brock that if he had a little more matitude, he could have come out on top, and Brock just runs to this as you'd expect grabbing Hardy and throwing him through a wall, which is excellent. Guess how SmackDown ended from here? After the match with Edge ends, Big Show continues to attack. Brock Lesnar runs in, lays him out with an F5, and chases Heyman through the crowd to end the show. And I know I would be absolutely... Like, you guys would be furious with me if I didn't highlight one of the lines of the month from Stephanie McMahon on the 28th of November edition of SmackDown. I didn't screw Brock. Brock screwed Brock. What do we make of all this then, gents? Over a year without referencing. (laughs) 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 Got the rock circa 2000. Nice. Can we just have a one year where we don't reference the Montreal screw job in November when we have WWE programming? Please. No. Please. They're not physically capable of doing that. God it has it, to God. be done. God damn it, pal. That's just sinking another dagger into that heart of that Bret Hart. God's sake. And Stephanie McMahon doing it as well. Like it's, the whole this whole storyline is 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 falling off a cliff and it dangerously close I, I know I'm comparing it to Goldberg a lot but it's very close to making Brock Lesnar just losing all the momentum that he has gained in the last eight months I know Chris you already have, have kind of given up on him which is very worrying for someone who's this athletically gifted but you've got all basically every single person involved in the storyline that isn't the big show really just seeing their credibility just drop you've got stephanie who's looking more and more incompetent by the day siding with this slime ball in Heyman, basically saying he doesn't want to be sued by Heyman, so therefore she's going to protect him and she's meant to be a baby face authority figure so she looks even worse coming out of this show than she has been the last month and then she has that awful delivery which you mentioned earlier when we may be able to play in just now She's not. She's no Vince for an authority figure. Let's put it this way. If we're meant to be turning into a Brock Lesnar versus Stephanie McMahon feud in the new year, then please just make me sign into Raw because that's going to be awful. Paul Heyman, as we absolutely talked about, not even he could save this with his promo. If there was one person who I thought could do it, it was Heyman's. You know, just listen to the reasons why we gave him, you know, promo personality of the year last year because he can do it but even this decision is beyond him we're meant to believe that just because Brock Lesnar stopped listening to him he's going to side with a jobber who's been on Raw's brand for the last like half the year doesn't make any sense Heyman isn't smart enough and he looks stupider coming out of this angle and then we get to Brock Lesnar so I just think that if you're if we're going to want to have Brock Lesnar win the title at WrestleMania, for example, or the Royal Rumble. 
he needs to have more than anger. Like, think back to all of those brilliant baby faces that we've had in the last 10 years of wrestling. None of them, I would say, have been watchable. You know, we want to root for them because they're angry. We want to root for them because they're engaging characters for whatever reason. That can be earnestness, that can be anti-hero, that can be pissed off, that can be that can be just comedically jock perfect. This can be it can be funny like Mick Foley. He can just be unbeatable like Goldberg and like what Brock Lesnar was. But now that we've got Brock Lesnar just running around backstage trying to chase people and then looming over Stephanie McMahon in a very creepy segment, which again, which I referenced at the start of the show, what I what we talked about with the whole uh, domestic abuse just doesn't play very well with me at the minute. Just don't do this with female authority figures at the minute. That'd be really helpful, WWE. But it just isn't working for me as a babyface. If we want to have Brock Lesnar be cheered, just have him do what he was doing, which is just beating up people in a very satisfying manner and that includes just f5ing suplexing and ultimately destroying a 500 pound monster that's all we needed to do and have paul Heyman pivot off him in a more believable way we've tried to make this overcomplicated, and we're trying to make brock lesnar like stone cold steve austin versus you know in this case two massive authority figures and i just don't see it working and we're going to have to think of a way to have him come up against a, a more believable threat in order to make this to work, because this is going downhill quickly. Rory, what do you make of Brock, Haven, Stephanie and that massive prick big show? <laughs> Get off the fence, Chris. Uh, OK, so uh, let's talk about the promo first that Haven cut after Survivor Series. Very, very good indeed. I'm sure that shock people were saying that did his best at giving an explanation for what is really the unexplainable i thought this line that dr frankenstein was uh frankenstein was no longer listening sorry was it, it also frankenstein is the creator not the monster there we go it's in red dwarf i should know that one that was a very very good line indeed but it didn't really make any sense because lesnar has been listening to paul Heyman, you know at no mercy, Haven was saying, kill him, kill him. I want him to die. And that's exactly what Lesnar was trying to do, wasn't it? You know, he had Undertaker tied up in the cage and was smashing his hand with a chair. So he was, he was obeying him, wasn't he? Well, then we've already talked about it. We're going back to the match again, Chris. And for your own sake, I don't want us to do that. But they did their best to make what they could out of the, the proverbial sow's ear. But there was no silk purse coming out of it. One, this one, I assure you. And then that through line, the whole of SmackDown about will Brock be suspended or not. And they, let's face it, they could have done the on-screen suspension there and then. Absolutely. But they just happened to be hosting SmackDown in Hartford, Connecticut that week. So, of course, they waited the next week when they were in South Carolina, where you could have Stephanie doing something that will get her booed, despite being a face. You know, you'll have Michael Cole point out on commentary. But South Carolina fans are booing the decision to suspend Brock Lesnar. And of course that's going to happen because Vince McMahon just cannot let go the fact that he is a Southern hick, as he would describe it. He was born in South Carolina. And to this day, he cannot stand the truth. 
So he will take every opportunity he can to have a pop at South Carolina. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, Shotgun Saturday night in January 97, when Terry Funk called him a goddamn Yankee bastard, Vince McMahon would have taken that as a compliment because birth certificate proves that is not true. He's a Southern boy. No wonder he loves the hillbilly so much. He gives himself away. But anyway, I digress. And the fact that Matt Hardy can't stand up to Brock Lesnar, Eddie Guerrero can't stand up to Brock Lesnar, Nobody can stand up to Brock Lesnar, although Stephanie McMahon can. She can get in his face. And in the end, she only walks away from him for his own protection. And that's why the security services are there when she delivers the suspension. I just, how clear do you want it, everybody? It's, this stuff is unarguable. Borderline indefensible. It always comes back to Stephanie, doesn't it? It shouldn't be. We should be talking about Brock Lesnar, Paul Heyman, the Moog Show, but we're not. We're talking about Stephanie McMahon. After two hours and 20 minutes of recording, she's going to be the last person I talk about, unless I drop in what I'm going to drop in in the next few seconds, just to make sure she isn't the last thing I discuss. But they've got what they wanted, haven't they? And as far as Brock is concerned, there you go, I brought it back just in time. It doesn't matter. I'll repeat what I said an hour ago. It doesn't matter. It's too late. I don't want him to be the avenging hero. I don't want him to have to rebuild from the first rung. I don't want to see that. It's Even if they manage to book it correctly from now until the Rumble or WrestleMania or whenever when he wins the title back, it's irrelevant. It's been done. Brock Lesnar did that nominally as a heel. The SummerSlam. And I say what I said an hour and 30 minutes ago. He was cheered by 95% of the people in the arena at the time. That story has been told. And the appalling decision to take the belt off him has put them back months and very possibly years. And it's irrevocable. I'm sorry. No, I'm not remotely sorry. They should be sorry. But it's done. It's finished. And... I'm going to say it if nobody else will. I'm not absolutely convinced that Brock is going to be able to recover from this. No, I'm with you on that. I think the damage done is potentially insurmountable. Uh, It's, yeah, really, really bad, I think. Um. It's it's everything about it. It's it's not just that it's the big show. There's so much more to this. And I'm glad you've said it first, because I feel like it's the type of thing that if I put out there, it would be construed as like a you're just so done with the big show that your negativity around it is is being clouded. But I, I think it's not that he's broken but there's just there's no quick fix here like it will take a long time to even get back to an even keel with where we were it's a really damaging couple of weeks for his young career just say again sorry i'll cut you off chris the problem is and i think dan alluded to it that they're in danger here outright changing his character as well that's the thing they're trying to move him 
slowly, but it's there, to the WWE version of a babyface. And he's not. Why was he being cheered by 95% of the audiences? Because he kicked fucking ass. And now he's some sort of marauding Avenger. No, just... I don't think he's got the ability to even play that role, in all fairness to him. No, he does what he does because he is what he is. And they're trying to make him something different. And with WWE babyfaces, you know, we've seen this movie before and we know how it ends. How do you think his, his best babyface character, from what I see, is just this welcome all comers ass kicker? It's like I'm, you know, and that works when he has the belt. It doesn't work when he's a chaser. A minute, in my opinion. And and what's so stupid about it is that welcome all comers ass kicker is not a million miles removed from what Peak Stone Cold Steve Austin was. And like, right, right, right. They they did that so well for so long that it's kind of right there. And Austin wasn't the archetype babyface, but he got cheered like I've never seen anyone cheered before. And it's not that hard to to tweak that formula. Like Brock's not on the mic like Austin would be, but you can make a Brock Lesnar that fits within the framework of that archetype of a babyface and run with it. And they were so close to it. And now they they've never been further away. One last thing I have to say about the last couple of weeks of TV, well, the SmackDown side of TV, is that I feel like there's about 20 segments on the show that are only there for the explicit purpose to show you that Stephanie McMahon is running SmackDown. Like, there's minor story development, like Heyman will threaten a lawsuit or, like, she'll threaten to suspend, but, like, that stuff that we've seen before and you'll just get like a thing where she's on screen for two minutes making a decision she's she's constantly there and i i don't know if it's because as i mean one of you have already said but i mean it almost doesn't need to be said she is not her dad she is not vince mcmahon on screen that it's just so egregious to me it's like stephanie's in charge yes we we get it like it's grating and I think having Brock mixed up in all of this and like Dan, you were talking about like maybe like the the authority sort of figure being Steph to like if 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 Brock is an Austin type character, then Steph is his Vince. Then like he does not have the foil to pull that off. And that is another great detriment to his current predicament within the company that will take a lot of work to turn around. And I think on that quite bleak note, (laughs) (laughs) that will just about do it for our November 2002 show. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for joining me for another Survivor Series. I wouldn't have missed uh, your reaction to the big show defending Brock Lesnar for the world, mate. But it was a very great, very good show to review, though. So best of both worlds. And uh, Rory, uh, great to have you on for another Survivor Series. I think you're probably our most experienced Survivor Series contributor at this stage. Uh, certainly in 
hours and minutes. <laughs> Going to be pushing the 20 hour mark, I would have thought. Yeah, pleasure to be here, especially on a show like this, Christopher White. Let's just say this was a very easy one to book the hosts and guests for. Let's uh, Rory, are there any uh, plugs for anything uh, for the uh, podcast that we should drop in at this stage that I haven't? There are, but they might well be dated by the time this show goes out. <laughs> Imagine that. So we are recording this on the evening of November the 18th here in the UK. And Twitter is very close to existing in name only. <laughs> and by the time the show goes out, you may be looking back on those days rather fondly so we are at least at the moment still available on twitter at wrestling 20 yrs and we're on facebook as well but if you do what i have done today dip your toes into the social media site they call mastodon see what i did there then you can find us on there and i believe i am happy to admit that i'm really not sure how this site works as yet um but do try and find us on there and if it works the way I think it works, then I will follow you back to prove that it has worked. 500 characters for one thing, and the onus in Mastodon definitely seems to be on discussion rather than Twitter, which is just disagreements and a very specific kind of disagreement. But we're on all of them at the moment, still on Twitter, these as we record this, still on Facebook, and do find us on Mastodon if you can at Wrestling 20 Years Ago Podcast. And we will follow you back and we can chat about all sorts of things there and then. Other than that, uh, no other plugs, just to say thank you so much for listening to this. And we're almost at the almost at the end of another year, gentlemen. 2002 is it's gone by bloody quickly, has it not? Yeah, and is it safe to say it's not quite been in 2001? That's very, very fair. But for now, I have been uh, this month's host, Chris White, and thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye.